0: Welcome to another episode of the Silk and
1: Steel podcast. I am your host, Carl Zha. Today, we will continue our series on the political history of Taiwan. As our guest, uh, a Taiwanese communist rapper, Xiang Yu, uh, Xiang Yu, welcome to the show again.
2: Hello, good to be back.
1: It's been a while since our last recording. I think it's almost a month. Um, what, what, what have you been up to?
2: Not much, really. Just trying to get started on my next album, which isn't going too well so far. But I think I just need to push myself a little bit harder. And other than that, just my summer class.
1: Can you uh, reveal a little bit about what, what your next album is going to be?
2: It's I think it's the same as my other albums. It's just me rapping about, you know, um, political issues about like imperialism and um, class contradiction and s- stuff of that nature. Really interesting stuff, you know, are there,
1: really. are there going to be accompanying music videos, too?
2: That's the plan. I I think um with COVID money coming in, I'll have a bigger budget for my next album. And since I have increased work hours, actually, during this. Whole, during this whole ordeal hopefully i mean i've been i've been saving money
1: nice nice uh okay that i remember that's one of the reasons why we have this uh, long interruption because you you had increased work hours so i'm glad you can make the time to join us once again uh i have been getting a lot of positive feedback on uh the comments on my patreon site about the series so we covered we managed to cover, you know, the Taiwan history from the prehistory all the way up to, I think, late 70s and early 1980s last time. Uh, maybe yes. we should do a quick recap for our audience just to catch them up, like refresh their memory or for the people who haven't, who haven't really listened or idea what we talk about. But I do recommend... Uh, if you haven't listened to the other parts of the Our Taiwan History series, I do recommend you go all the way back to the beginning. I will list the number of episodes in our show notes. And uh, but but meanwhile, let's just do a quick
2: recap. Yes. Okay. So um, I think for this to make sense, if you don't get anything in the recap, just remember this main um um this main point. There are two. The Taiwanese population can be broadly divided into two groups, benshengren um, and waishengren. And Bensheng-ren means um, people of this province. And it refers to everybody who was already, everyone whose um, family was already in Taiwan by the time um, Japan surrendered in World War II and the KMT. Um, and Taiwan was returned to China, which was under um, control of the KMT at the time. And waishengren uh, are um, the... People from people whose families came from the mainland after 1945 and around between then until 1950s and all of their descendants. And, um, you know, there's this sort of confusion among foreigners on. Oh, Taiwan is just like the origin story of Taiwan is like 1949 when Mao Zedong kicked um, Chiang Kai-shek out of the mainland. And no, it's it's not really that simple. And this sort of um, historical understanding kind of erases er- it erases all of the history before um before the KMT was even a thing, before the Republic of China was a thing, and before the People's Republic of China was a thing, and that it leaves a lot of holes, which um and it leaves a lot of uh, knowledge gaps, which makes it near impossible to understand what's going on today. So, Mike, our goal with this whole podcast is to fill in those holes. So, oh, and on the pension ribbon, I
1: have a, question. I have right? a quick question. So. Do the indigenous population of Taiwan fall under Benson then? Do Do they normally get included in the Benson? I was gonna Adam- get
2: to that. It's oh, an perfect. interesting question you might ask because well technically they are, but um, Taiwanese society is so Han-centric that Benson then basically implies it's um, it's like okay, yeah, they they are when 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 we want them to, and they aren't when we don't want them. Whatever's convenient for like the opportunists.
1: Right. For those so the, for the people who were listening to the Taiwan series for the first time, yes, there are indigenous uh, population of Taiwan who have been living on the island since time immemorial. There are, uh, however, there have been a very marge, marginalized uh, in, in Taiwan society. Um, you know, there's they only a compose a small percentage of population. I mean, the closest analogy, I guess, you can... is like the native americans of of the of the americas of north america particularly
2: yes and then there's also a lot of assimilation like the ones that are counted today are like the two percent figure counts as the ones who haven't been like totally assimilated right right because the
1: process of um taiwan being settled by by uh by han settlers from the mainland that happened uh you know over 400 years ago is that uh, as we talk about before, uh, the, 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 especially the first wave of migrants into Taiwan, they're mostly predominantly young male, right, and, and many of them take up indigenous wives, and, and, but their children kind of just adopted the high ident- identity and they, they've been assimilated in that way.
2: And yeah, also- there's also like some cross assimilation. Like if you go to their temples, you'll notice that like it's Chinese folk religion, but then some of their gods are like Aboriginal gods. Yes. Yeah. The little things like that, and, and um, it's so then yes, there are Indigenous people, but unfortunately, it's because of Ben Sheng Ren. This sort of concept is so um foreign to America that a lot of times they just translate it to natives. So then there's also this misunderstanding that oh, the KMP just went and just displaced all of the. Indigenous people, which is not really how it happened.
1: No, no, the indigenous people got marginalized and, and long before and the KMT even existed. Before. Yeah, exactly. This is uh and and what? Not saying it's
2: if, right, but it's not something that we should pin on the KMT, is what I'm saying.
1: No, no, but what the we we covered this history in depth. Uh, yes. as in our earlier episode, I highly suggest people go listen to them to learn how the how the process uh, uh, took place Um, but let's continue with our recap yes
2: so then um, you know you had Japanese colonization as a result of the um, Sino-Japanese War and um, which ended in 1895 and Taiwan was a Japanese colony until 1945 you know there were some um, there was like a process of um, there were multiple phases the first phase was pretty much um leave Taiwan's like Deeply taiwan's um culture and stuff alone but then in the last final years during the war there was an attempt to try to um um jappify the taiwanese people but then it was it was really short-lived and but then it, it kind of plays a slight role in the in the kmt's attitudes towards taiwan which we're going to get into now so 1945 taiwan was returned to china and um uh, kai-shek sent this dude named um Chen Yi, to serve as the chief executive of um, the Taiwan provincial government. And because of, you know, poor military discipline, government corruption, bad economy, you know, was like hyperinflation and stuff like that, because they were um, sending all of the grain and stuff to the mainland to support the civil war. And um, the communist. because of, yes. And then because of um, an incident resulting on tax cigarettes, and this woman, getting sh- this woman who was selling said cigarettes getting shot by KMT soldiers, a rebellion broke out in february 28th, 1947 so then Chiang kai shek sent the military to taiwan to carry out repression on um a massive scale and thus really truly marked the beginning of like the kind of um the conflict between ben shengren and wai shengren and because the kmt was all made up of all wai sheng ren kind of wai sheng ren of all classes just became like um just they they were um seen as the oppressors even though the kmt was pretty much only the elite of the um of the white so then after the Huaihai campaign in the mainland china which you know resulted in a communist victory Chiang kai shek realized that the kmt was totally fucked so then he appointed on um, this dude named chen cheng as the chief executive of the southeast and the chairman of taiwan taiwan's provincial government in preparation for taiwan to become his base of operations for the so-called um, liberation of the mainland and um on the mainland, under the guise of currency reforms, Chiang Kai-shek collected the savings of you know, the middle classes. Like, you know, he took their gold, their silver, the U.S. dollars, all of which was worth approximately uh, 300 million U.S. dollars, and then sent all of that to Taiwan, which was then used to stabilize the new Taiwan dollar. So Taiwan's kind of economic stability after the civil war was kind of the result of that. Partially. Yeah,
1: I just like to interject with a personal story. Um, a lot of the discontent uh, the, the the Taiwan the Bensons and you know people in Taiwan had against uh, the KMT government is actually very similar to um, the you know the 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 same discontent felt by people on mainland China. You know, <laughs> leading up to the Chinese Civil War. You know, my um, my so my great uh, my grandpa, uh, right? Uh, he he t- used to tell me the story that uh, you know the there was such a because you know after uh, after the Japanese uh, invasion slash occupation ended, everyone in China was expecting kind of return to normal life. But Jiang kai She's regime decided to pursue the civil war against the communists instead. So a lot of resources getting basically consumed by this by this war and uh which led to hyperinflation and and you know my my great uh, great grandpa my, not my great grandpa my grandpa was telling me that it got so bad you know sometimes uh they're just the, the kmt government just printing tons of paper money and and to, in the end it, the, the paper money become kind of worthless right and then they, like they like one of the thing they did w- printing work uh, paper money is you know they take like the real valuable stuff like like you say like gold (laughs) and precious metal they take them they took with them to taiwan
2: yeah and you know why my grandmother so on my mom's side is so good at mental math is because um when the kmt was issuing the new taiwan currency um as their as part of the currency reform program she was a bank teller and she was responsible for that so a lot of, a lot of math involved and counting, and a lot of overtime. Anyways, but the thing is, I like to mention it was the same discontent. But in the mainland, it's like, there's no feeling of oh, th- these people are like, you know, are different from us. They're just different classes of mainlanders, you know, or different, um, or just um people. Representing different interests among mainland Chinese people. Whereas in Taiwan, it's like, okay We've been colonized for 50 years by Japanese And then so then there's gonna be some cultural differences between Taiwanese people and mainland Chinese people and then these mainlanders just Come in and the ruling class like the Chiang Kai-shek. They carry out this stuff. It's kind of um Unfortunately, but it's just the way people work. It's you just associate this sort of stuff with like identity Yes so anyways, June 24th, 1949 Chiang Kai-shek arrives in Taipei and from then on, soldiers from the mainland migrated to Taiwan, totaling to approximately one, 1. 1.2 million. These soldiers never really planned on staying in Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek told them that they would be going back to the mainland soon. So you have a lot of people who just kind of got separated from their families. And um yeah, so but and this marked a great shift in Taiwan's demographic composition, because prior to this, the majority of um even though the majority of Taiwan's population was Han Chinese, there was little to know Han Chinese with roots from beyond the coastal provinces of uh, Fujian and Guangdong. Whereas these new migrants that came with the KMT were from all over mainland China. And um, like I said before, there was a degree of de facto segregation between Ben Shengren and Wai Shengren, because the soldiers, the 1.2 million soldiers who um, moved to Taiwan were given housing in these um, things called Juncun, which is like military dependent villages. So they had their own little seg- little villages that were all Wai Shengren, and they kind of lived their life, you know, among themselves, and around this time, av- after February twenty eighth of nineteen forty seven, martial law was carried out, and ben shengren were excluded from high levels of government. So then there was this sort of attitude of Whai shengren being superior, while petty bourgeois ben shengren held classist attitudes towards many um, Whai shengren, like we mentioned previously, because a lot of those Whai shengren soldiers were, you know, were poor because they came from rural China and all over the place, and whereas Taiwan was Experienced some development as a result of um of um Japanese occupation. And because the new government was composed of Wai Xenren, and because of the Fe- february twenty eighth incident, there were high levels of distrust and animosity between Ben Sheng and Wai Xenren. And not only this, while Ben Xenren saw wai Xenren as oppressors, the KMT saw Ben Xenren as potential traitors due to having been educated as um Japan's colonial subjects. So until 1990s, like we mentioned previously, um, the so-called National Assembly, the um, Legislative Yuan, et cetera, were all dominated by White Xiong'en, despite White Children being a minority in Taiwan's population. And not only this, but white children were beneficiaries of affirmative action in civil servant examinations. Just imagine if um, white people in America were the beneficiaries of affirmative action it's kind of like that except um white people are the majority in america whereas white children are the minority so in 1956 the acceptance rate for um ben ren and civil for like civil service was 0.061% and in the military in 1960 only 13.8 of the lieutenants 9.5% of field officers and 1.3% of general officers were um taiwan born and taiwan born is not just um ben ren but also mainlanders like mainlanders like who's like you you know descendants of mainlanders who were born in Taiwan because even even though you were born in Taiwan during that time you were still considered a white student it's like kind of kind of carries over now imagine with these sort of odds like you'd imagine a lot of them were probably white so clearly an era of white superiority and Chiang Kai-shek's legitimate legitimacy at the time largely rested on the policy of reclaiming the mainland, as well as his, you know, support from the U.S. because um, on the international stage. So um, many people felt that Ben Shengren were cannon fodder in the eyes of Chang, since Ben Shengren were hardly seen as one of our own by the KMT. And reclaiming the mainland would be a victory for and that wouldn't necessarily benefit Ben Shengren, like, in their, like, in their minds. So, and then as the... As the mainland China continued to develop its industrial base and create and successfully create nukes, and also replace the so-called ROC in the UN, it became even more obvious that the policy of reclaiming the mainland was nothing but just um, an unattainable dream. So, without a realistic political goal, there was this sort of ideological vacuum in Taiwan. It's very important for this episode. And by this time, there was a sizable Benzheng petty bourgeois that was anti-KMT. But also, unlike the previous opponents to the KMT that were more left-leaning, these um, anti-KMT people were liberals. So another interesting shift in the political um, trajectory of Taiwan and the alignment that's, of political forces, I suppose.
1: That's because uh, the, the pre- previous generation of opposition to KMT that was more
2: left-leaning was squashed pretty ruthlessly by the Chiang Kai-shei regime. Yeah. Including both Ben Sheng and Wei Sheng, and if you were a communist or even suspected suspected of being a communist, you were you, you were thrown in jail for a long time or killed. Chiang Kai-shek dies in 1975, and he was replaced by the vice leader Yan jia Gan for the remainder of his term. As you know, for the remainder of his term, and then after Yan jia Gan completed his term, the National Assembly elected um, Jiang Jingguo, who was his son, as um, as the new leader of Taiwan and our previous episode i believe largely covered the Jiang Jiguo era so we're just going to skim over that real quick Jiang Jiguo era heavy emphasis on economic development because um previously it was more like okay we're going to reclaim the mainland and all that so then there was a shift in attitude towards ben Shengren and um Jiang really tried to get um the more involved in politics at a higher at higher levels of government um for a variety of reasons one is just because he he kind of knew the um the sort of discontent towards the kmt among these provincial identity lines was brewing and also because reclaiming the mainland became unrealistic and because he saw little to no hope of um continuing the um so called Zhang dynasty because all of his kids were pretty um they were they, they weren't let's just say they weren't cut for politics they were just underachievers and disappointments to him
1: so then, there during were this time your typical kind of like the fun, fun trust fun babies right it's very spoiled and and i mean he it's not for lack of trying and jingguo tried to groom his own son
2: for succession but they're just not cut for it you know you know how his sons were half belarusian so um I think at some point one of his sons, who was being considered for politics, started dyeing his hair black and wearing um dark contacts. No way! I I, I read somewhere just because um they were still like they were still like you know Chinese nationalists, so it would to them they thought it would be really weird if we had like some like Western looking dude, you know, be in higher levels of government.
1: Uh, But then
2: he eventually died of diabetes. Yeah. Two of his kids died of, or two or three of his kids died of diabetes. Just kind of, I think just bad genetic lottery.
1: Yeah.
2: Or, um, and then, so then Ching era, 10 major construction projects. We covered that in the previous episode. Not going to really get to them. It's just, you know, just a lot of basic, um, like, infrastructure that's set up for, you know, Taiwan's further industrial development. And this coincided with the time when Japan was, um, kind of moving up in the production chain. So then Taiwan doing, Taiwan started doing more low-level manufacturing for, Japanese companies, and this kind of was the time when the economic miracle of Taiwan happened and became one of the four um, Asian tigers, along with, uh, along with Hong Kong, Singapore, and the bad part of Korea, or South Korea. And um, Zhang Jingguo kind of, his policy of bringing more Ben Shengren into higher levels of power was called um, Cui Taiqing政策, how would he translate that? It's kind of like promotion of the policy of the um, promotion of taiwanese youth yeah yeah okay anyways he brought the likes of li donghui wu, wu Ni, and wu boshong into the higher echelons of the kmt and these were all um these are all major political figures in the kmt that we're going to see but they were all ben instead of wai shengren. Though Li Denghui is going to be our focus for today. Just keep that in mind. At the end of the day, although the so-called Republic of China was still a military dictatorship and martial law that was enacted in 1907 was still effect. Um, Wait, I didn't word that sentence right. Basically, it was still a military dictatorship and there was still martial law. So despite all of these um, all of these policies of um, promoting Ben Shengren, there was still a lot of discontent and a lot of contradictions that were brewing. One of which was um, January 1st, 1979, when the U.S. and the PRC established formal ties. And um, like I said before, one of the major power sources of the KMT was its um, alliance with the U.S. So Jiang Jingguo was pretty much cut off from that. Um, So over the course of the 70s, petty bourgeois bensung intellectuals began calling for the redistribution of political power. And I'd like to note, I'd like to ask the listeners to note. How all of their demands are in the political arena, but not in the economic. So it's very typical of you know petty bourgeois-led, a middle class-led uh, movements that aren't that shouldn't be called revolutions. It's basically they want a redistribute a redistribution of power within the um, existing bourgeois government. So they're reformists, not revolutionaries. So then they want things like. Democratization, localization, independence, and these things became common, like commonly discussed topics. And this marked the beginning of a great challenge to the KMT's authorities. Though the KMT effectively suppressed communists in the past, it didn't really have experience in dealing with petty bourgeois liberal opposition. So then, like we mentioned in the last episode, they started setting up all these um, pro, um, pro, not not pro independence um, Pro democracy and anti KMT magazines and there was a cat and mouse game. Cat and mouse chase between um, the magazines and the KMT. The KMT would ban them and they would change the names and then set up shop again and then repeat the rinse and repeat. This culminated in the Formosa magazine incident or call or Kaohsiung incident. Because um Formosa one of the magazines was Formosa magazine or maybe Dao And it held a commemoration event on International Human Rights Day. And um there was great um Police response. It was the greatest clash between civilians and the police since the February twenty eighth massacre in nineteen forty seven, and the organizers of the magazines were arrested and sentenced. And some of the pe- and the people who were arrested were Shi Mingde, Huang Xinjie, Lin Nixiong, Lu Lian, Chen Zhang Junhong, Yao Jiawen, Lin Hongxuan, and all except for Lin Hongxuan have been the dpp chairman at some point so keep this in mind carl any of these names sound familiar
1: oh yeah i mean the for sure <laughs> yeah
2: what about she, chen she, ju? uh
1: not so much
2: chen I, ju, and she's she's Mindo, definitely yeah. Because
1: he's uh he's like one of the godfather right of dpp and and for our audience who is not familiar with the acronym dpp uh dpp stands for democratic progressive party which is uh Uh, which emerged to be the main opposition uh, party in Taiwan in the later years. And and currently, uh, they have taken power. The current Taiwanese leader, um, Tsai Ing-wen, is from the DPP. So we we will get to how they kind of transitioned themselves from uh, like a kind of underground uh, petty bourgeoisie opposition party to, you know, taking power.
2: Yes. And um, the lawyers included... The, the lawyer in the um, Formosa Magazine incident included Jiang Pengjian, Chen Sui-bian, Xie Changting, Su Tseng-chang, And all four of these people became notable politicians in the DPP. Jiang Pengjian was the first chairman of the DPP, and Chen Sui-bian was elected leader of Taiwan in 2000. Xie Changting was the first DPP mayor of Kaohsiung, then the so-called premier of the uh, you know so-called Republic of China, then he became the chairman of the DPP, and now he's um, Taiwan's representative to Japan. So he's kind of like the underground ambassador. And um, Su Tseng-chang is the current so-called premier of the, um, you know, the ROC, the Taiwan authorities, and he's the former chairman of the DPP. So you know, a few, a few more of these incidents happened around the time. This was the eighties. It became clear that the KMT could no longer hold on to power without some major changes. So people think of um, the democratization of Taiwan as this sort of revolution, but I don't think so. I, I, I see it as a reorganization of the bourgeois dictatorship. As a recomposition of it so that it could maintain its class rule and maintain um, social stability. Because in, like, if there weren't like a socialist revolution during this time and things began to deteriorate, you would see a failed state. So furthermore um uh, like we mentioned I mean toward- basically
1: the the people who were in the opposition at the time they what they're demanding is not a fundamental restructuring of the society what they are they are demanding is they themselves getting a, a share of the political power uh, they wanted the political power to be redistributed among the and elite right which is them represented by these uh uh, uh, you know, lawyers and professionals, and 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 the, who they see they they themselves represent Benson's and interest, but really they just represent the Benson's and the the, the 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 professional class or the middle class interest, right?
2: Yes, and then there were a few. So some of these incidents include like the the one we mentioned before, the Jiangnan incident, which involved the murder of the author who wrote an unauthorized biography for Jiang Jingguo. He was a U.S. citizen and living in the U.S. when members of the Bamboo Union gang, Zhu Lianbang, killed him. Zhu Lianbang is like, like one of Taiwan's biggest uh, mafiosos, And it's basically like one of the even. OK, fun fact, even Taiwan's like criminal underground is like divided between like provincial lines. There are like bensheng gangs, gangs and waiseng gangs. And Zhu Lianbang and, would be the White What do you think? Gang. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and 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 it's also they uh, you know they have very close tie with the KMT regime, right? I mean like the the, the Chiang Kai-shek has all you know f- throughout his uh, rise to political power, Chiang Kai-shek always maintained very close tie to mob. <laughs> I mean that yeah. that came about in 1927 when he when he employed the Shanghai mob to massacre the communists. And 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 then, you know, you know, like they they use uh, kind of the, the the mob as their kind of spy network to 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 spy on the leftist. I mean, same, the same change basically continue in Taiwan, even under his uh, his son's uh, rule.
2: Anyways, the Jiangnan incident kind of soured the relationship between um Jiang Jingguo and the U.S. because um, because Taiwan's intelligence was involved in killing a U.S. citizen. So Jiang Jingguo was forced to purge his intelligence team, which included one of his sons. So that ended um, his son's political career. And then more stuff that happened around that time that really, um, that re- really um, discredited the KMT was 1985. There was the Xin um, An, the Taipei 10th Credit Affair. So there was mismanagement and corruption of the 10th Credit Cooperative, which resulted in many people's savings disappearing overnight. There were um, over... 100,000 victims and 60-some companies bankrupted. So the then finance minister, Lu Runkang, was forced to resign. And what whatever remaining trust there was in the KMT just kind of evaporated. I don't know if you've heard of this incident. This was kind of new to me when I was doing research because this was still before my time. I guess you were a little kid when this happened.
1: Yeah, in 1985, I was still in
2: elementary school, (laughs) so no, I wasn't familiar with it. Yeah, but interesting note, notice how it was a um, credit cooperative. So you're going to, this will kind of go into things because um, even though Taiwan's capitalist, it it wasn't organized along like a a orthodox capitalist society. There was still a lot of top-down control that's atypical for Westerners.
1: Taiwan is not one of the, you know, kind of like the the, the Chicago boys uh, model of de- economic development. Uh, or when, Hong Kong. Once economic development was was top down, state directed, and Zhang Jingguo, uh, who had been as the son of Jiang kai she was sent to study in Soviet Union in his youth. Um, you know, so after he came back, uh, and became groom for leadership under KMT. He basically adopted a lot of the kind of the state-directed economy model from former Soviet Union and then implemented them in Taiwan. Uh, you know, like that. That's that's not actually what uh, you know the. What we've been taught, at least in U.S. university, about how free market capitalism should work—like, <laughs> uh, I, if Taiwan uh, were a
2: free market capitalist society, it would be really poor right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just a little anecdotal side note. Like in 1997, I was um, so I was I was junior in in Caltech, and I I was taking a economics class. And I wanted to write a paper on kind of how the, the Asian, East Asian um, development model, right, which is just very obvious to me. You know, the example uh, of t- Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, that they, these are all like state-directed uh economies and and this in, in, to a similar extent with the, the model was being adopted by mainland China itself uh but my professor actually said no 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 you know the that that model is totally been discredited uh you know because this was the time of uh onset of the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and she's like no 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 you know like that the, the current crisis just proves the superiority of the free market capitalism you know you, you should really uh choose a different topic but i that just kind of showed kind of the ideological (laughs) works that happened on the university like at the university level in u.s right i mean this was 1997 uh you know in hindsight that was just a little hiccup but anyway
2: go ahead so um basically i was mentioning that because um a lot of the liberalization that'll happen, that you'll see in the 1990s and the 2000s, will be the liberalization, total liberalization of Taiwanese society, and like this sort of like a lot of the government-held um, these sort of credit cooperatives and state-owned enterprises and stuff. You'll see a lot of them start getting privatized to varying extents, including education. So like you'll see also like the neoliberalization of higher higher education in Taiwan as well. I didn't do too much research in that topic, but it happened. So it's if oh, you want to yeah, learn perfect. more about it.
1: Yeah, let's let's uh, let's move quickly move through uh, the rest of the 80s so we can get there.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then 1986 Jiang jin at that point Zhang jin legacy was the um, economy. But as you can see politically, it was disaster after disaster. You have like all sorts of opposition. You had the KMT involved in all, all sorts of scandals, you know, killing a U.S. U.S. citizen and pissing the U.S. off. Like fucking up a credit co- cooperative and bankrupting a lot of people so as a result the kmt decided to be more lenient towards its opposition and the dpp was formally established in 1986 before it was just a united front um called the Dangwai movement which was independence against the kmt that couldn't form a party because um of the Bantu political parties other than the kmt anyways the TBP was still illegal but it, it, it was established formally in 1986, nonetheless. So, as we mentioned, the Dangwai movement was originally part of a united front that was opposed to the KMT. But separatism became a package deal later on, you know, like one of those identity politics things. 1987, um, Zhang Jingguo ends martial law, thus ending 38 years of military dictatorship and um, November second, nineteen eighty-seven, he allows those with family in the mainland to finally go visit family, and then nineteen eighty-eight, January first, Jiang Qingguo ends the ban on independent newspapers and non-KMT parties, and then later that month, in less than two weeks, on January thirteenth, he dies. So, what's the significance of his death? Well, his death caused this um, a schism in the KMT. Along what lines, guess? Oh, identity lines, of course. Yep. and外省人. Jiang Jingguo didn't name a successor, and um, keep in mind that the leader back then was still elected by the unelected, um, so-called National Assembly. So then, um, the外省 elite and the party thought that the party state was rightfully theirs, but the vice leader at that time was Li Denghui, who was a um. Bensheng elite. So enter this dude named Song Yu. Song Chu Chuyu became, be, began his career as Jiang Jingguo's secretary. Then he became director general of the information office. So his, he was like the, the censorship dude. And then he was in contact with the opposition and realized that the KMT's old ways were unsustainable. And thus he fought against the conservatives in the KMT who wished to block Lee's ascendancy. By the way, Song Chuyu was a Waisengen who was born in the mainland whereas thus ultra conservatives in the KMT quit and then formed a new party called the New Party in 1993 Xin Dang and thus, um, Song Chuyu temporarily gained the support of Li Donghui and was appointed the chairman of the Taiwan provincial government note back then there was still a provincial government that was separate from the so-called national government um you know to maintain the um to to maintain the facade there is a so-called Republic of China beyond Taiwan, Jinmen, Mazu, and Jinmen, Mazu, Penghu. But then the provincial government has since then been frozen with its duties transferred to the, um, the central government. So 1994, chairman of Taiwan province became a position that was directly elected by the people, and Song Chu Yu became, um, became the first chairman that was directly elected by the people of Taiwan with an approval rating of around 90%. Uh, keep this in mind, 90% approval rating, Wai Ren KMT elite. Whereas Li Denghui, you know, the dude who was the actual leader, but then he was, but then in 1996, there was to be Taiwan's first um, direct election of its leader. Now, Li Denghui recognized that Song Chu Yu had aspirations of his own. So Li revised the constitution and froze the um, so called provincial government, thus stripping Song Chu Yu, who was the, um, the head of the provincial government, of power. And then Li Denghui chose Lian Zhan as his running mate. The DPP's candidate was Peng Min, who we mentioned in the episode in one of the previous episodes was one of the authors of the Manifesto of the Taiwanese People's Salvation, but he lost to leave. Li. Li Denghui was pretty popular. And then Li Denghui kicked Song Yi out of the party and then began openly expressing his um, two-state theory you cover the two-state two
1: theory real quick?
2: Yes, yeah, so the two-state... Th- so before um, the official stance of Taiwan... I mean, it still is the official written stance, but it's not actively pursued anymore. Before, it was, um, there was only one China, and one China is the Republic of China. The two-state theory is mainland China is the People's Republic of China, and Taiwan, um, Penghu, Jinmen, Mazu, are the Republic of China. Or there's one China and one Taiwan, depending on how you interpret it. But back then, um, it was just um, it was basically a shift from saying that the ROC is the Chinese government that's temporarily based in Taiwan to the ROC government is the Taiwanese government.
1: Right. So basically, this is a recognition that uh, that the political fiction of Republic of China. Has control over uh, all of China, Taiwan, and Mongolia is is a, is a lie, and and recognition of the kind of the uh, 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 the facts on the ground. But but at the same time, wants to um, uh, it's also an effort to gain recognition for the the, the current Taiwan's current status to uh, to as grant- in the country. Yes, to grant it legitimacy and basically keeps the status quo, and then and then uh, you know that that the close the it's door a formalization off. of the status quo. Exactly, exactly. That's that's a better way to put it. So yes. this
2: is um, it's really strange because I think a lot of Westerners get confused. They're like, oh, Taiwan's reactionary because they claim to be um all of the government of all of China, but actually that was the point of unity between um, Chiang, Jie, Chiang Kai-shek, and Mao Zedong. Because both of their view is, okay, there's one China and our respective governments are competing entities for that one China. And that this is something for us to take care, like, to deal with as Chinese people. It's not something that foreigners have a right to um, interfere with. You're going to start seeing a shift in that because Li Donghui, we're going to start getting into Li Donghui in this episode. Yeah, I think this is a yes. good um, segue, right? Yes. yes. So, Li Donghui, I-, I like to call him the Judas among Judases. And you're going to find out why. He was born in Taiwan during Japanese colonization. He was also a Huangmin or Komin, which was um, during Japanese colonization, there was this policy towards the end where if you adapted Japanese customs and spoke Japanese at home and practiced Japanese religion and all that's all that stuff, you could formally become a like a formal subject of the emperor, which was like a higher Status than like a regular um, colonized Taiwanese, but you're still not quite like real Japanese, and like that sort of ceremony involved them um, then like denounce, renouncing your Chinese ancestors and then getting new fake Japanese ancestors. It was kind of crazy. Anyways, Li Donghui was one came from one of those families, and his Japanese name was Iwasato Masao or Yan Li Zheng, that in Chinese. And um, in 1946, he joins the Chinese Communist Party as a student at National Taiwan University through a front group called, what is it called, Taiwan, 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 so I just want
1: to interject for a second, uh, leading brother, his older brother was actually, uh, actually joined the Japanese, uh, Imperial army. I'm not clear whether he was drafted or he volunteered, but he died and he was actually enshrined in the famous, uh, or, or I should say infamous, uh, uh, Yasukuni Shrine in Japan, with were war criminals also enshrined, <laughs> and 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 Li makes a big deal to go worship there every time he visits Japan, and which you know, of course, j- just another another of his famous trolling um, stunt. But Li
2: uh, if you're listening to this, you should seppuku yourself. <laughs> Anyways, um. So he so he joins the um, the Chinese Communist Party in 1946 through a front group called the um, I think I'm trying to translate it. It's like the um how would you translate Taiwan? It's the the union like the union uh, for this self-determination for Taiwan's self-determination and democracy. Not close
1: enough. Uh, Taiwan yeah. democratic uh, uh, De, uh, Taiwan democratic autonomy or Taiwan democratic. A uh, self uh, self determination union.
2: Oh yeah, S- close enough. Something like that, which was headed by um Xie Hong, who later moved to Beijing. She was um uh, she's a Taiwanese communist, and this was under the directive of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. A um a peripheral. I don't know. This this union was created by Xie Hong under the directive of the Central Committee of the. Chinese Communist Party and it was a peripheral organi- organization of the CCP's working committee of Taiwan province. And yes. this working committee was headed by um Tai Xiaoqian.
1: Yes, a um, lot of people don't realize like Ty- you know Taiwan had its own indigenous uh, communist party uh, this was during the you know Japanese occupation period which we have talked about in our previous episode. And and this, um, uh, and this, of course, because of the cultural ties, and 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 this, the, the Taiwanese Communist Party work in very close association with uh, the uh, the 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 Communist Party of China, and they they actually send their members to join, um, you know, join the the communist party on the mainland and one of their member was uh, Cai Xiaoqian who joined who participated in the famous long march so he was sent back to taiwan to kind of head head the you know taiwan underground resistance work to prepare for you know the liberation of taiwan in 1940s but that that kind of fell apart because uh because of the 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 chunkai shes yeah kai white terror yes
2: yeah Li Denghui quit the Communist Party in 1947, and um, he and Tsai Xiaoqian promised each other to keep his involvement in the party a secret. And then later he claims that he never sold out the communists communists in Taiwan. But um, the KMT has a very comprehensive intelligence network, and for him to have gotten to such a high level in the KMT would have meant that Jiang Jingguo looked through his files carefully. And it was also mentioned that Li explained to him how he joined and quit the party. So are we really going to believe that he could have earned Jiang Jingwu's trust without selling the communists out? I don't, I don't, I for one, don't really believe it. And um, because the law back then was that once someone has participated in a communist organization, he's presumed to still be an active member unless proven otherwise. You have to, you have to voluntarily surrender to the KMT. And from declassified documents, we can see that um, those involved in his group were executed or imprisoned. And the case was named after a member he had introduced to the organization. So, how is it that someone he introduced was executed, yet he was able to worm his way into the KMT? I think a snitch is a snitch is a snitch. Interesting and fun fact. If you want to look for the proof of this, you can go to um the um this the Taiwan's um Department of Security um 国家安全局, and look through one of the files um what is it? <laughs> 會邊第二第二集第186到190頁 and the title of it is Fei Taiwan Sheng Gongwei Hui Tai Da Fa Xue Yuan Zhi Bu Ye Cheng Song Deng Panluan An and Li Donghui is actually named in that file as Jin Fei Li Donghui actor like, or like <laughs> communist <laughs> bandit Li Donghui. <laughs> Well, Anyways, Jim,
1: I, you know, in this particular just, in particular case, it, it just uh, literal translation is just just a traitor, trait traitorous, tra- 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 traitorous um, bandit, way, which I say it's a it's yep, an accurate yep.
2: description. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, enough of that. He studies abroad in the nineteen fifties and receives his master's in agricultural economics at Iowa State University, and then in nineteen fifty seven he returned to Taiwan and worked as an economist at the Sino-American Joint Commission on Rural Reconstruction or the um, or Hui for short. And notice how they use, the, they use um, Sino instead of like Taiwan back then. Anyways, it was a commission established in mainland China in 1948 that moved to Taiwan in 1949. And as the name implied, it was sponsored by the U.S., and then um, later in the 1960s, he went back to the US and did his PhD at Cornell. And then he worked at, as an adjunct professor at um, National Taiwan University's Economics Department. And in the 1970s, when ching Jingguo was the so-called premier of the ROC, Li Deng-hui became the youngest member of Jiang Jingguo's cabinet. And like I said before, Jiang Jing was trying to get more ben sheng involved in higher levels of government, and Li Donghui was one of them. He somehow became the, the vice leader in 1984. And when Jiang Jingguo died, um, Li Donghui became the leader with the help of Song Chu Yu. So economically, Li Donghui was very pro US, um, very pro Japan, and pro um, bad Korea, South Korea. And he really wanted to limit Taiwanese business activities in mainland China. Keep in mind that, um, you know, in the 1980s, there was finally some sort of some, certain levels of opening up between um, Taiwan and the mainland under Jiang Jinggu and Deng Xiaoping. Back then, um, limiting Taiwanese business activities in mainland China could be done under the guise of being, um, you know, anti-communist or whatever. Because for the longest time, when Denghui first came to power, he wasn't, he didn't make public his um, separatist views. If you listen to his um, inauguration speeches from earlier on, he'll talk about how it is the aspiration of all Chinese people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait to reunify, to peacefully reunify the, um, the motherland and all that stuff. That, that was actually the standard for the KMTs. I, I think a lot of Western, Westerners listening might not understand that. They think that, oh, Chiang Kai-shek, oh, origin story of Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek, and the separatists are all the same. Oh, you see, Chiang Kai-shek did pave the way for that to happen, but not quite. That sort of, it's kind of an oversimplification to think that. Anyways, under Li Denghui's leadership, there's a sort of slow but very obvious ideological shift in Taiwanese society. Because until then, people spent much of their time in history class learning about mainland Chinese stuff. Like, my mom had to remember shit like, um, which provinces does a Yangtze River run through? Or um, which mountain in which province has this or that? And how high is this mountain? And which, what's the largest um, freshwater reserve in China? and Stuff like that. Stuff that you can Google nowadays, but you had to memorize back then
1: yeah um interesting fact so right now very recent, the the song by originally by Taiwanese singer uh the song you, you know the song uh, more commonly known as right the song made that, that that become viral because uh, a, a man with egg-shaped head in China sing the song and then the the, the video went viral and the song itself went viral and uh and and then i see a lot of uh comments both on twitter and youtube by people from taiwan saying oh whoa, well, whoa! Well, you know it's it's not a it's not a chinese song it's a it's a it's a taiwanese song it's sing by a by a taiwanese singer fei yuqing um but,
2: but uh, fei yuqing yeah yeah fei, fei, like,
1: Xiao fei, fei yeah 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 fei yuqing mm-hmm. and then um I remember cuz but this song was actually originally uh, the theme song of 1984 Taiwan drama of the same name Yi Jianmei which which would happen to be the first Taiwan drama was that, that was allowed to circulate on the mainland you know so so the, I actually remember that
2: TV series you know, Fei Ching, it's funny because Fei Qing is one of those who would identify as Chinese for exactly not Taiwanese like until like maybe the '90s, like nobody in Taiwan would have considered him a Taiwanese because he was white Shengren.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, th- th- that's why I'm I I just thought it's so laughable because the song, it's a theme. First of all, it, it became popularized as a theme song of the same TV named TV drama *E which is set in 1930s mainland China, right? And and like the the song itself is it's very like. I mean, it's it kind of it's a kind of very evocative of the the like the the traditional Chinese tomb and like kind of the chinese style. and And Fei Qin is the one who, who, who also, like, he was famous for singing, like, uh, My Chinese Heart, right? <laughs> on Mainland. And then and, and, and people are saying, oh, yeah, but but he's he was a singer. he You know, you just have to make money to appeal to Mainland audience. But th- this not song the case. was... No,
2: it was his, his, his... That was his, like, he's... Your very typical, like, singer who was brought up under the KMT when, like, Zhang Jiechen and Jiang Jinggu were still alive exactly
1: exactly like in 1980s when the song came in out in
2: 1980s he wouldn't have called himself a Taiwanese
1: exactly in 1980s and even in 1990s most people in Taiwan still identify as Chinese you know and 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 like they they know like nobody would even make it an issue if we say oh that that's a Chinese song right and but yeah, now yeah. we have stupid uh kids on the internet and say oh no, no no that's not a chinese song that's a that's a taiwanese song sung by a taiwanese singer which is kind of ahistorical because that that just when the song came out it's it's kind of oh,
2: funny you so you have um, it's kind of like yeah, some people in taiwan like some younger people who like travel to xiamen and they're like wait why do people here speak taiwanese
1: <laughs> yeah so for people who not familiar with the geography of Taiwan Strait, Xiamen is directly across the water uh, uh, from Taiwan. And, and Xiamen is one of the main port from where kind of the ancestor of the, the Ben Sengen who traveled to Taiwan from, right? Because Xiamen was uh, was the main base for uh, uh, Koxinga or Zheng Chen Gong, right? Zheng Chen Gong and his fleet. So Zheng Chen Gong actually led his men sail from Xiamen to uh, you know, take over Taiwan from the Dutch colonialist uh, you know, four hundred years ago. So so like <laughs> I mean it's it's sometimes it's quite astounding how
2: it's kinda of like uh, Americans going to the going to Britain and being like, Hey, why do they speak American?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, I think that's a good analogy because, you know, there are actually Americans are like that. Well so so like it, but still it kind of boggles my mind like giving the close proximity of of you know Hong Kong and 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 uh, Taiwan and some some some, the the profound ignorance <laughs> of some youth from from both places, about mainland China is sometimes just
2: comical. Actually, this one th- this one Taiwanese person once asked me, it's kind of weird because that person was born and raised in Taiwan and I was born and raised in the U.S., but she was like, wait, so this Taiwanese, which is what they call um the Taiwanese variant of Hokkien, which is a Southern Minan Dialect like mainland Chinese, southern Chinese dialect from southern Fujian province that came to Taiwan from there. But then anyway, she was like, so is Taiwanese like a language that got developed out of Japanese when the Japanese um colonized us? And I'm just like, Jesus fucking Christ, what did they teach you guys at school nowadays? Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, yeah, yeah people, people. I guess it's not limited to 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 Taiwan, right? I mean, yes, some US... kids
2: who just don't really pay attention. That's yeah, way. you can't really blame individuals. Yeah. I don't think that's an accurate reflection of most people. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, yeah. one of Li Don um, first victories yeah. on the international stage was 1995 when the U.S. government and Congress allows him to visit the U.S. on an unofficial trip, like as an individual, not like as the leader of a country. Making Li Denghui the first incumbent Taiwan leader to visit the U.S. So this greatly boosted his popularity in Taiwan. And uh, he gives a speech at Cornell, where he studied. And he makes his view that the ROC is on Taiwan public. So now, um, though the Changs certainly did set the stage for separatism, they were vehemently against independence. So there's no such there under Chiang Kai-shek and Jiang Jingwo. there's no one um, sort of oh the ROC is on Taiwan no it was the ROC is China Taiwan is just the part that we have control over and it's the base for the recapture of the mainland even though eventually that just kind of everyone knew that that was bullshit but that was the re- that was the official rhetoric now what the is trying to say is okay the ROC is on Taiwan which is factually correct but You can kind of see how he's strategically using the so-called ROC as a veil for separatism. He's not just going to say, oh, Taiwan is an independent country. But no, the ROC is an independent country that's on Taiwan. See, that's sort of that way he can kind of there's plausible deniability. So then rather than, you know, pursue formal independence, because in the past you had the hardliners who were like, you know, super anti-KMT and anti-ROC who wanted like whose idea of independence is to replace the so-called Republic of China with a um, Republic of Taiwan, whereas the um, you know the more mainstream separatist bourgeoisie will use the Republic of China as a Chinese cover for their Taiwan independence. And then around this time, it was the three nos were um, popularized: you know, no reunification, no independence, and no use of military force. And this was basically the same what the situation was by the time Jiang um, Jingguo came to power. Though, you know, when Jiang Jingguo was still the leader, the official rhetoric was still the, like the pursuit of reunification. So Li Donghui's whole speech was basically a public announcement on the international stage that the Taiwan authorities are now seeking to maintain the status quo indefinitely. So
1: I to give a little um, like historical background of '90s. At this time, I was already in college in U.S. Um, like this, you know, like there was a so the Soviet Union collapsed in 1992, right? And then there was was expectation at the time, uh, globally, in fact, that China would follow the suit, especially after. 1989 Tiananmen Square protest. I mean, there has been Western sanctions on China. So many people expect, you know, China would follow the suit of USSR and collapse. And that's when Li Denghui actually proposed um, uh, his uh, his theory that China should be split into seven parts, right? His famous <laughs> speech on, on how China should be split into seven equal parts. Um, and and, uh, and, and, and and at the same time, the, the end of the Cold War, um, which which kind of the, the, you know, like the relief, the pressure on the U.S. to continue to pop up uh, military dictatorship in in place like Taiwan and, and South Korea, which kind of, um, you know, led to transition in the, the so-called democratic transition in those places. Um, so like that that also provided the additional uh, air of legitimacy right i mean the, in, in south korea that uh, the military dictatorship ended uh, you know led to the first popular election and then li also in the 80s. Y- yes but li Denghui was very uh, i think he's whatever you say about him he's a very uh uh a a very tactical politician, right? He read, he was, he was able to read the, 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 the which way the wind was blowing. And so that led to the, the democratic election on Taiwan, which I think you are going to talk about next, right?
2: Yes. Okay. And um, I want to mention, you know, you were talking about the eighties and the um, democratization of, um, democratization of uh, South Korea and Taiwan. Mm Mm-hmm. Notice what was happening at the same time in the socialist bloc: Perestroika, Glasnost, and all of, and like like the Berlin Wall falling. Yes. Yes. So then there was a sort of um, this sort of lent legitimacy because rather than seeing that as a counter revolution and like because I I think um, there are different things. One of them is the destruction of socialism. While the what was happening in Taiwan was like a restructuring of the bourgeois dictatorship. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, yeah. The way that it's presented then in Taiwan and the rest of the world is, this is a worldwide, um, this is like a global phenomenon of um, democratic uprisings against authoritarianism.
1: Right. I mean, like U.S. Me- thats a U.S. narrative, right? Which pretty much got adopted in most of the Western media.
2: And that's like the religion that's practiced in Taiwan today. Which is why you have people that might starting to begin be be like against capitalism, but they're still really anti like anti communist. So you have like new political parties that are forming that are like that use some leftist leftist rhetoric, but at the very end, you look at um their programs and all that stuff. It's basically like, Maiden. like like color revolution stuff.
1: Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the more successful strategy that the CIA and other Western intelligence have adopted since the end of the Cold War is they um, They have uh, you know first is You know use of NGO and also adoption of a lot of the leftist rhetorics during the Cold War You know a lot of it in
2: a way that makes the so-called the new pseudo left very very useless For the working class and harmless towards the bourgeoisie.
1: Yes. Yes, and and the, you know you they they talk the right talks you, they invoke a lot of the same anti colonial uh, uh, anti colonial rhetorics that was developed out of the stru- uh, anti colonial struggle of nineteen sixty and 70s. But so now they're doing they- that
2: in Taiwan now. They're calling the KMT like colonial rule, and now they're 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 trying to um pack. They're they're trying to present um Taiwan independence as decolonization, even though it's like it's um led predominantly by um the hun in taiwan and not yeah, like I mean, indigenous people
0: it's, this it's is hilarious
1: same, same i mean same thing is happening in hong kong right you have the Laosan collective uh, that, that supposedly present a leftist uh, 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 view on on the hong kong protest movement and and uh, you, if you look at their rhetorics, you know they, they call themselves you know they're from a decolonial p- perspective but what they really proposing you know, it's it's not that very different. Like their agenda. Had just happened to coincide perfectly with, you know, the U.S. State Department, Pompeo, and and all the right-wing U.S. politicians like Marco Rubio, <laughs> right? And, 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 yeah. but, but they have a very nice, all these nice-sounding know, leftist rhetoric, which they adopted. Uh, but but uh, in, on, underneath all that, if you look at the consequence, like Confucius says, right, you know, not only you should lessen the words but you you should also watch their actions
2: (laughs) that's hilarious because in Taiwan every every now and then you have these NGOs like these like old white dudes going in saying oh the democracy here is like falling apart and we need to do this and this and this to be more democratic and they're just really pushing U.S. State Department stuff and then people buy it up all the time and it's like dude grow some common sense like in the U.S. like you know and impoverished black areas if these like rich white dudes dressed in suits went in and told them like how to run how to run their communities <laughs> they would they would be very doubtful they would not listen to what those men in suits are saying not not nothing against suits but you, you know what i'm trying to say he's like
1: i actually i had uh I had, you know, I, in my mind i just uh, have a a picture of these uh mormon missionary is going to going to the south side chicago uh uh, trying to preach that that's that's my mental mental image but okay basically
2: and then like uh, yeah this um this this one um person i met in taiwan just kind of i think stopped talking to me over stuff like this i was just like I, i was like you really think i was like you really think these people have your interests at heart Like, who cares what these foreigners are saying about our democracy? Isn't isn't what's important, like what we say about our democracy and how we can make it better for us?
1: Um, I think you know there's still a factor of kind of white worship in must much of East Asia kind of kind of the oh, there result- definitely is yeah, there's a, like that leftover of the the colonial uh, memory and the colonial history of the region, right I mean the, the still that's why a lot of the there's still a lot of uh, uh, importance <laughs> attached to to all these white expats and what they have to say. Yeah
2: uh, I mean, yeah she
0: yeah. called
1: me
2: um a um a, she she called me dictatorial because i i was like you know i spoke about um, us aggression in the dprk and she was like well that's a, that's protecting democracy and this and that and it's like that's not communism that's just authoritarianism so then I, I i pressed i pressed her on and then like i asked her like more i just kept pressing on and i kept asking more questions about okay so what do you know about this what do you know about like the supreme people's on um, this supreme people's assembly what do you know about the, this that and the other and then she was like to be honest i haven't <laughs> investigated and i'm just like well that's a lot of talk for someone who hasn't investigated is it isn't yeah, it
1: yeah.
2: yeah she gave me this little like figurine to go take pictures of when i was in north korea uh-huh. i never gave that figurine back over these arguments
1: <laughs> anyways. <laughs>
2: anyways back to the topic 1996, we mentioned that um we, we mentioned how um there was this dude named Song Chu Yu who was um becoming really popular among Taiwanese uh, across provincial lines, both Ben Shengren and Wai Shengren. And he posed a threat to Li Denghui's power in nineteen ninety six. So Li Donghui picks Lian Zhan as his running mate. He freezes the um, provincial government to strip Song yu who was chairman of the Taiwan provincial government of his political power. And then around this time, there was also the Taiwan Strait Crisis. You want to get into the Taiwan Strait Crisis?
1: Yes, uh, I, I was so I was much more aware of the situation in 1996. I was uh, I was in college at the time, you know, so I I, I watch all the read all the <laughs> op-eds in LA Times, um, et cetera. So to coincide it with the Taiwan election, you know, mainland China PRC uh, staged a, a, um, a missile test uh, basically uh, in, in Taiwan Strait. And and, you know, it, that was a big, you know, like that was a big point talking point at the time about, you know, how the big bad China is bullying the, the plucky, small, democratic Taiwan. Uh, that, that was a talking point in U.S. at the time. But, but go ahead.
2: So this kind of backfires because um, Taiwan's media presents it, like, like you said, as like, you know, big bad China, like oppressing small, innocent Taiwan. So Li Donghui wins the re-election easily. And then um we're going to get into his final term as um leader from 1996 to um 1996 to 2000. So I'm just going to look through my notes I have it in another section.
1: Yeah, while you're looking through your notes, uh, I can tell an anecdotal story of um my college days. So some of my college classmates commented on the the 1996 Chinese missile uh, test uh, in Taiwan Strait, they say, oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, the, 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 there's nothing to really nothing to worry about because, you know, the the, the Chinese, uh, the, 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 the current um, level of Chinese uh, missile technology probably means they will miss their mark Wide, wide, widely, right. And uh, <laughs> I'm just listening to that. I'm like, actually, if you really think that the Chinese missiles would miss or mark widely, that that's actually a, a, a area of concern because <laughs> then you don't know where they're gonna end up. <laughs> uh, but anyway, go
2: ahead. So basically, um, the last four years of Li Denhui, in the KMT, what he was trying to do was just totally fracture the KMT, because that would that way it would pave um it will pave a path towards victory for the opposition. So yeah. like we mentioned before, you know, you had people, you had um, the second generation of um, these Waiseng elite who um, formed the new party. That was literally just called the new party. And then yeah. people like Song you formed the Qin Min-Dang, or the people first party. Yes. yes. So that this creates a fracture.
1: It, because, it's also uh, interesting that, that you brought... Uh, you 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 brought to light that there's really also a, a clash of personality, right? So between the Song Chuyu and uh, Li Denghui, which further split the KMT ruling elite because you know Song Chuyu he was a very popular politician and he had his own political aspirations, and Li Denghui being a very smart, tactical politician, he he maneuvered such a way to you know push Song Chuyu basically out of uh out of limelight and that's that led to song to Yu to form his own part political party further dividing the K- kmt which led to eventually led to the first dpp victory right
2: yes that happened in um 2000 um so lee don't Song kick song out of the party what? starts getting into his two-state theory yes
1: I'm sorry. Uh, I just want to interrupt. When did the desinication campaign in education start in Taiwan? Did that start under Lee Teng-hui in
2: 1990s, or did that start? It kicked off, off under Chen Shui-bian. Okay. Okay. Like it kind of started happening under Lee teng but not like so out in the open. I think. Um. I think we uh, talked about. I think maybe now this episode is a good time to recap on it, or this or the next episode, like when we talk about the desinication. Of um, the education because I do have some stuff about like the, the laws that were passed that changed the um, education system, that, that changed what was taught in history classes. Okay. Um, like back then, um, like national history in Taiwan referred to like all of Chinese history. Yes. And um, as a little bit, I, I think there were, I, I admit that it was a little bit, I'm not saying that it's too mainland focused, but it didn't have enough stuff about Taiwan. Which mm-hmm. I, I think, no matter what province you're in, you should know more about your own. You should You, you should know more about your own province than what they were teaching at the time. Sure. Yeah.
0: Sure. But That's then fair. they just.
2: Yeah. But then now what they're doing is they're trying to totally get rid of learning that sort of stuff from the curriculum. Which, to be fair, it makes tests a lot easier because you have like a few thousand years less to learn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, anyways, 2000, like we said, there was a party split. Lian Zhan was the incumbent vice leader. But Song Chu-yu also runs. Now you see the problem. Song Chu-yu was very popular. Lian Zhan was incumbent. And both were... Uh, Lian Zhan was still the KMT, but Song Chu-yu was the KMT. This effectively splits the KMT vote. Yes. The blue camp. And uh, also towards the, the end of his term, the Donghui also tells these German reporters that cross-strait relations are relations between two countries, and at the very least, they're special relations between two countries. So, um... Yeah, I mean... Because, and since Song Chui's popularity was, like, happened to be across pro- the provincial divide, like, among Ben benshengren and Ren, that statement... I'm not just saying that to drop random trivia. It, it's meant to put Song Chui in a difficult position because if Song Chui... Supports it, he'll alienate a good chunk of his supporters. But if he's against it, he'll also piss off a significant chunk of his supporters.
1: This is why, uh, you know, like as Taiwan's democratization underway, the identity politics start to play larger and larger role, and the the and then opposition party Democratic Progressive Party DPP will capitalize on that and and really. Use the divide and conquer strategy to to um, to capture electorate
2: turrets, right? Yes. So, um, Song Chu and Chen Shui Bian were both more popular than Lian Zhan, but because Lian Zhan and Song Chu were divided, um, divided the blue camp, Chen Shui Bian was able to win with guess the percentage of the votes he got.
1: Uh. I I remember it was in the 30s, right? It's like yes,
2: 39.3 percent.
1: Yeah, just barely. Yeah, just, he just he just barely squeezed in with a plural, not even a majority, but just 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 because he got the most votes because the the KMT votes were divided between Song Chuyu and Nian Zhan. Song
2: Yu had 36.84 percent. Yeah. Nian Zhan had 23.1 percent.
1: Yeah, because Chan really represent kinda of like the ossified conservative KMT position that was kind of being phased out of popularity. Yeah. And, and Lien Chan himself was not very, you know, like was kind of not very charming. He has, no charis-
2: he has no charisma. <laughs> yes. Yes. There was um the, the popular consensus in Taiwan at the time was wow, the DPP is really good at elect like really good at campaigning because they made they made things out Like their events were just just like huge festivities, you know, with like fireworks and performances and just there was a lot of pop and circumstance. Whereas I think the DP, I think the problem with the KMT is it's always been very um, complacent with itself. That's still a problem with the KMT today.
1: Well, I think it, it it's come from like its history of being this uh, so used to one-party rule for so long that's you kind of you kind of it's hard for you to kind of catch up with the times. Whereas the opposition can afford to be more experimental and and you know like just trying to trying trying anything that will work, right? I mean, they're they're probably quicker to adopt more popular tactics. That actually reminds me, like in in. Uh, post-soviet union after the collapse of ussr um (laughs) that us actually sent in a lot of election consultants quote unquote to Yeltsin. you know like because Yeltsin had such a flagging uh like after his first term he he was really deeply unpopular so so US were worried about his election chances so they send in all these consultants you know doing those things like you talk about like holding con- pop concerts you know getting him out there dancing with with uh, like uh with with uh with popular artists you know in open air concert and you, and and also US on top of that of pouring a lot of money to support these uh Yeltsin's election campaign so eventually got Yeltsin to squeak by with a with a margin of victory
2: I mean it's the people who con- who um the, the people who convince us to drink coca-cola are the same people were the same people who were convincing Russians to vote for Yeltsin Yes basically yes marketing, so, marketing Yeah so DPP you know this marks the first time the DPP um became the incumbent party I mean the DPP had won local elections before like for example them they like Chen Shui-bian was the mayor of Taipei, and that's quite significant because um, cities like Taipei and um, Kaohsiung, they aren't they're treated in Taiwan as like provincial level cities. So that in the past under martial law, their mayors weren't elected by the city's residents, but they were appointed by the so-called National Assembly. So that it's like they're they're pretty powerful positions, and especially Taipei because like the capital is in Taipei, so. If you win mayor of Taipei, you know, you're, you're kind of up there with, the, um, with all the big timers. So when the DPP was created, we're going to recap, go back a little bit. When the DPP was created, it wasn't necessarily a separatist party, but just anti-KMT. But without the identity politics and stuff, like how do you set yourself apart from the KMT? Basically, whatever the KMT stood for, the DPP opposed. The KMT was for Chinese national identity. The DPP was against it. The KMT was against um, environmentalism, you know, for the sake of the economy. So the DPP supported environmentalism. The KMT was for um, nuclear power. So the DPP was against nuclear power. And in 1991, the um, DPP formalizes its um, pro-independence party platform, which marks the beginning of its strategy to win votes through identity politics. So it, the identity politics basically works like this. The KMT is made up of white waishing Shengren are mainlanders. Mainlanders are Chinese. So therefore, to be against the KMT is to be against China. So therefore, we need to gain independence if we truly love Taiwan. It's it's basically the forefather of Tumblr political correctness.
1: I mean, in a way, a lot of the, you know, it's, this is a lot of KMT's own doing, right? From, yes. From- from the years of KMT misrule and also um from years of cold war propaganda against mainland China right i mean like like yes. it was a DPP just very cleverly kind of transformed that that rhetoric from uh, before it was about this evil bad mainland uh like the red chinese right the the, the chinese communists but like the the the, the mainland Chi- but eventually kind of the the mainland china itself not just the, the say the communist government, but China, but the whole of mainland China became vilified, right? In, in through this Cold War propaganda, it became very easy for DPP just to draw this line. So that is a bad China. We're not part of that. We don't want to be part of that. <laughs> China is bad. We are good, right? Basically, that that's that's what it comes down to. Yes.
2: Yeah, so I, I I don't think um see supporters of the DPP think that they're like the antithesis of the KMT. And I think that's a bad analysis. I, I see them as, in a way, they're a, con- they're a continuation of it, but they're also a split from it. They continue the bourgeois rule. It's a continuation of anti-communism. It's a continuation of just the status quo, basically. But it's also a split in terms of things like national identity and stuff like that, identity politics.
1: Yes, that's that's one. Yes, yes, that's. I mean, that's basically the major introduction in Taiwan politics. I see. I mean, like after the like the democratization is that basically the identity politics become very central platform for DPP yes. because, so because like, the fact um, that,
2: that hate they, Chiang Kai Shek, but somehow everything he said about communists was correct. Yes, exactly. And there's also this, this phenomenon of. We hate Chiang Kai shek, but we still love America. Yep, so to them, it's like it's like, um, Chiang Kai shek being an ally of the U.S. was just an unfortunate necessity or some sort of error, or that yeah, the U.S. did support a bloody dictator, but it's still good. There's a certain level of cognitive dissonance, it's These ideas.
1: As, as you know, U.S. supported Taiwan against the communist China. It's just unfortunate that Chiang Kai shek was uh. Dictator of Taiwan, right? But now, now yes. if we just got get rid of KMT regime, everything will be good.
2: Which is why their idea of form of, of internationalism, like these petty bourgeois like DPP supporters, is not solidarity with the world's oppressed peoples, but solidarity with American and Japanese people, and also solidarity with the compradors in the third world. Not not the people of the third world, but like the compradors. Who are still um, who still maintain diplomatic ties with the government on Taiwan?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's just such a weird um, like as a, a result of you know the the KMT mismanagement of the popular discontent in Taiwan itself that after the KMT rule come to an end in Taiwan, you know Taiwan is one of the f- I think it's the only East <laughs> Asian countries where like japan colonial rule kind of remembered almost like fondly right i mean like in places like korea china you know philippines indonesia everybody remembered you know the japanese colonial time was bad bad time but but taiwan is like the one exception that it was like almost oh you know yeah the, the the japanese were initially brutal but at least they they build us infrastructure. They're, they're better. Well, they'll than- say
2: things. They'll, they'll say things like you know like our um our good manners, our obedience of the law, yeah. and our good citis- citizenry are all um things that Japan blessed us with. So we became more civilized after Japanese yes. colonization. Yes, yes. And I'm just like fuck you. Yeah, yeah.
1: That that's unfortunate. And but that's I, I that became a, a like like mainstream really after uh you know after the leading way era and it, a lot of a lot of that come kind of come um i think it, it, it come started under leading way era it kind of just got solidified under yeah. sense right
2: it's weird because economically like under Jiang jingo there were close economic ties, ties with japan but like culturally like they the kmt did what it felt was necessary to get rid of japanese influence as much as it could from taiwanese society but like the Li donway has always been like really pro japan like he still goes to japan and gives talks and gives talks in japanese he says he says the um Yu dao belongs to japan yeah that is so i mean it, it's just you know the not
1: i think by the worst case but um you know diaoyu dao or so called senkaku by the japanese it, 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 if at all, it's closest to Taiwan, and physically, it's closest to Taiwan. When it and, was a and,
2: Japanese colony, those islands were administered as part of as part of Taiwan yeah, by the exactly, Japanese.
1: Exactly, exactly. And then the the only reason that currently there was a dispute is because the US. is because exactly because after World War Two. Um, US occupied uh, the the Ryukyu island chain right including Okinawa and they also occupied uh, the Diaoyu islands and they the used the Diaoyu the US military used the Diaoyu Diaoyu Dao as like a target practice right and then then of course Jiang kai regime which relied on the US support had no objections <laughs> but but then in 1972 um, when US finally decided to transfer uh, the Ryukyu Island chain, which had been under U.S. kind of uh, uh, administration after World War II, back to Japan, uh, and then they when they did that, they transfer along uh, with Ryukyu Island chain, they transfer the transfer administration of Diao Yu Islands to Japan. So so this is really an issue. That's when 1972. That's when like the the dispute surfaced, because then then you know both the RO we, both the Jiang Kai government and the Beijing government protested this this U.S. U.S. action, and and then that the dispute became like between US, between China and Japan on, over the ownership of those islands. And and, and but throughout Jiang Kai Shek's rule, throughout KMT rule, you know the the KMT on Taiwan had maintained Diaoyutai was part of Taiwan. But but, but I mean, it
2: still maintained that way, like officially. If you, go to the post office, if you go to the post office in Taiwan, if you buy if you buy like the standard post office envelopes, on the back you'll see all the postal codes codes for all the cities and counties, um of um Taiwan, Penghu, Jinmen, and and like the, the very last zip code is the one for diao Yu Dao.
1: Yeah, that's that's a weird thing about Taiwan. You have these Taiwan political leaders, you know, starting from Li Teng and then later, <coughs> I believe, also um, either. <gasps> Xiu Lian or Chen uh, Shui-bian and maybe even Tsai Ing-wen have said, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, is, should be part of Japan. <laughs> then, but but then on the ground they actually don't, you know, they 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 haven't done any. They didn't alter kind of the 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 the, the older claims and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of this weird dynamic.
2: Yeah. It's, um, so after, um, Chen Suibian's victory, um, Li Donghui kind of leaves the KMT. You know, he's kind of like, my mission's done. So the newly incumbent DPP has a few problems. Because, um, throughout Chen Suibian's leadership, the KMT dominated legislative, yuan, or like kind of the parliament, was, um, dominated by the KMT. And cross-strait, cross-strait relations became very complicated because the DPP won through, you know, anti-mainland ID poll. But realistically, they weren't going to pursue formal Taiwan independence. So this kind of has a problem because how do you how do you deal with this but not make your voters feel betrayed? You're not going to change Republic of China to Republic of Taiwan. You're not going to formally declare independence.
1: And so what the do you do? Rea- and also, the reality was that the Taiwanese economy was increasingly integrated with mainland uh, because you know the the. May, the PRC government pursue a policy since 1980s. Basically, you build it, they will come, right? They, they starting to uh, giving a lot of privileges to uh, overseas investors from Taiwan and Hong Kong and like including tax benefits and land benefits. And then they that attracted a lot of capital to mainland China. And also on top of that, because, you know, much cheaper labor labor cost. Um. So a lot of the Taiwan businessmen were flocking to invest in mainland. Be, uh, on top of you know, of course, due to the close cultural ties, and then you know, with, with and the, keep in
2: mind, this included Ben Shengren. So the DPP couldn't totally piss off these um, businessmen.
1: Yes. Yes, because they, you know, it's not that the, the those businessmen necessarily pro China, but they're pro money. <laughs> they, yes. that's they, the problem.
2: I, um, mainland China's policy for so long has been build it, they'll come, and then they've they've like kind of sucked up to um, Taiwanese capitalists, not not sucked up, but you know, giving them lots of benefits, thinking hey, that will transfer over to the Taiwanese people and it'll gain their support. Yeah, but those people in Taiwan are also seen as opportunists. Yes. Nobody likes them, so like, they're kind of they're they're not trustworthy allies, and I think the CP and the the, the CCP should really re. I I think it kind of is trying to reevaluate these things, but it's oh there's a big mess to clean up,
1: basically. Yes. Yes. I mean like that. Well, I mean that's also getting tied up with you know China's internal development because back in the eighties China was trying to ha- it was capital starved, so it was trying to attract overseas capital yes, and and priorities. And- then yes, and overseas Chinese were the largest source of capital investment into mainland China in 1980s. And then, following 1989 Tiananmen Square protest, there was a Western sanction placed on China. So, so you know, in the early 90s, when the Chinese co- economy furtherly opened up, it is mostly you know Chinese capital from Hong Kong, Taiwan, oh, South. Tiananmen
2: protest. Why Taiwan had a, um, the Tiananmen sa- the sanctions resulting from the Tiananmen square um incident mm-hmm. benefited taiwan in a certain way because taiwan was not really affected by the sanctions yes because of its legal gray area yes yes so yes and that that taiwan did. Why capital- I, Taiwanese capitalists did did um capitalize on the sanctions
1: and and then uh i think that that's why like also that that kind of emboldened li denhui right i mean like cuz cuz um i i remember during the Li Hui era, the, the, the talk is that, yeah, we can, we are basically, uh, you know, this kind of... Uh,
2: We're already independent. We don't need to pursue formal independence. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And also, you know, Taiwan had, at the time, this was when tech boom was taking off in U.S. And, and the Taiwan economy, it, it has a lot, uh, you know, in large part, kind of integrated with that. With with the U.S., you know, with supplying parts, you know, yes. for building PCs like Acer, right, and like Acer, of,
2: Asus, some um, D-Link, TP-Link, um, and um, a lot of the um, like and
1: what, the semiconductors,
2: Jian, semiconductors, right?
1: T- yes, yeah, TSMC, the the they the, the Taiwan
2: Foxconn,
1: yeah, and and and, and yeah, Foxconn, they. But but then when mainland opened up, of course, Foxconn went over to mainland to open up factories to, to utilize uh, the, the, the Chinese mainland labor. And, and one of the movie I remember that was very popular, a uh, Taiwan movie that was very popular in Indonesia in the 1990s was Shaolin uh, Shaozi. In Indonesia, they, they call it the Boboho. Uh, my my fiance knows about it because he was very popular as a comedy and it's it, I, I watch a little bit of it and then it's very important like this was made in early 90 90s uh like 94 right in the way era but just before the <clears throat> 1996 election and and one of the theme in the movie was that the dad was going over to mainland to open a factory right <laughs> so it was very very kind of in, in in line with the times and and the and, and also you know like it's obvious from the movie it's the, the, the uh, back in the 90s,
2: people in taiwan still identify as chinese yes i I still remember that like when I was a kid yeah i think um like when i was because um I was born in 1993. So like when I first started developing memories and stuff, I remembered, you know, Li Donghui as the leader of Taiwan. And I remember even in like Tainan, which is like, it's in southern Taiwan. It's, um, it's, it's a, um, what's the word? It's one of the the most, um, pro DPP areas of Taiwan. Even then people, even back then people there called themselves, um, Chinese. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then. And then,, uh, but Li Hu was also he tried to put a stop to like kind of the he was a uh, he was he was afraid of further economic integration with mainland. So that's when Li Hu first proposed the go south strategy, which encouraged he tried to limit the Taiwanese investment on mainland and trying to redirect. Uh, some of this investment towards Southeast Asia, to places like Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, and other parts, uh, because he said, you know, we should not be overly dependent on the the, the, the mainland. Uh, but as as time goes, I mean, that strategy is uh, I hasn't really worked because you know mainland is just be, because of sheer size and the, the cultural affinity. You know, there's. Uh, uh, and, and and eventually, when the mainland economy developed itself, you know, mainland China became a huge market for the for the uh, and, and that that additionally drawing in more Taiwan businesses. So
2: yeah, yeah. so yeah. what did Chen yeah. Shui-bian do to kind of show that he was still pro independence, but without actually declaring independence? He did little things, like I mentioned. How, um, for example, there was a um, there was some state owned enterprises in Taiwan. One of them was called the Chinese Petroleum Company, which is um, 中国石油. He changed the name of that to Central Petroleum Company, and um, 太- and just He wanted to change it to Taiwan You, but I think that name was already registered or something. So then he couldn't. So he just changed it to Taiwan 台- He changed it to 中油, and then added Taiwan to the beginning of it. So it's Taiwan Zhongyo Which it's just funny because even when even in the two thousands, when I go there, what they did was instead of making new signs, what they did was um. They just took off the two characters in the middle. But because they've been on for so long, you can see the outlines of the characters.
1: <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So before it was Songguo Shiyou, right? So they just took out Guo and
2: Shi. Yeah. <laughs> but then because the characters have been on for so long, the colors different. So you can see like the outlines of them. Yeah. Yeah. Little. Uh, and then he changed um, the, the, the postal service in Taiwan from Zhonghua um, Youzhen, which is, in English is called Zhonghua um, Post. Zhonghua is like another name for like China yep to Taiwan post, but then that was undone in two thousand eight by the KMt
1: all right after Ma because mindjo Ma Zhe- said he
2: didn't he, he didn't want mindjo said he didn't want his um the stamps for his inauguration to say um Taiwan zheng on them <laughs> <laughs> and then um before uh, if you're old enough, you'll remember before the 2000s, Taiwan's passports never said Taiwan on them they still don't okay. say Taiwan in Chinese on them today back uh, then all they said was republic of china yeah. passport yeah
1: i, I mean only... even, even when um you know i i was in u.s since 1990 i remember even when uh, the uh, back when you know china, taiwan was still manufacturing things <laughs> to export to u.s uh um like i see on the, the on the tags i still see tags that says made in roc right made in republic yeah. of china yeah yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Um and so little things like that. The passports. So nowadays the passports they still look the same, but then they'll say Taiwan and English on the bottom. Yes. And then like on a lot of um like a lot of things that have Republic of China in them, he added Taiwan in parentheses. Just little little things like this. There was recently. There's been talks to rename um China Airlines to Taiwan Airlines ah yes i i used to be so confused like um i
1: remember trying to book and like try china airline i couldn't tell whether that's like from the
2: mainland china and there's yes yes so um so i i read on weibo people on people on weibo are like actually you know what we support it that way it'll end the two china situation in the airline industry (laughs) and then they're like you guys are a province. Like, what gives you the right to have a um, national airline? Change it to Taiwan. <laughs> Change it to Taiwan Airlines. We're for it.
1: Oh, so so you'll be like, because you know, for people who don't know, in, in China, a lot of provinces they have their own airline. So there's a Highline high airline, airline, airline. Right. More, more famous is Highline airline. So basically, they're saying, you know, you 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 have the same status as the Taiwan airline will have same status as Highline high airline, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay.
2: So then, when the DPP goes in, it also has a lot of issues because um, until then, they've um, had a lot of experience in undermining the KMT and rebelling against the KMT, but they have no experience in building up Taiwan. It's kind of like how um, a lot of the um, a-, a lot of the pseudo left in the West—they're against capitalism and they say, "Oh, we're gonna tear this stuff down. We're gonna tear this stuff down." But then, um, what are you gonna? That's that alone doesn't win people over in the long run. What are you gonna off? What are you gonna offer them afterwards after you tear everything down? Right? Yes. So, yes. There's there's remember. a destructive aspect of. Okay, this isn't a revolution, but I'm just gonna use revolutionary logic. There's there's revolutionary. There's um a destructive aspect. We're gonna tear down the old system, but then on top of the ashes of the old system, you need to construct something new, and you need to promise people, you know, stability, increase. In, in, Increased standards of living and that sort of stuff. That's why Lenin had the whole peace land and bread You see like Stalin was basically the um, kind of the combination of the two
0: That's why he was
2: like kind of he was he was conservative in some ways like like, you know appealing to People who just want stable lives and stuff He wanted. Okay, we're gonna have socialism in one country We're and then we're gonna build ourselves up first before we really focus on you know exporting revolution, whereas you know the Trotskyists were like, "No, we need permanent revolution. We need to just we need to just keep on doing revolution and make the whole world socialist, otherwise our revolution's going to fail." But as people don't want that. People, the average person doesn't want you know this constant this constant upheaval.
0: Most Remember like communis- war
2: communism in during the Civil War, and the Soviet Union was terrible for most people
1: yeah most people just want to lead stable lives and have have the ability to pursue you know have a family provide for them and 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 have just, let
2: their kids have better lives than they did exactly yeah yeah and
1: and and that's um that's so that's one of the thing i kind of uh, you know i my criticism for Noam Chomsky because Initially, I, I I when I first came to the U.S., I was attracted to Noam Chomsky's writings, and and then That's I, good later stuff. I, later I realized, you know, he offered very good critique of Amer- U.S. imperialism abroad, but like 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 he every genuine you know,
2: attempt to create some to create an alternative is also equally, if not more, criticized by him.
1: Yes, and and then what what ha- ended up happening is. You know, he provides this very nice, uh, you know, like this uh, kind of respectable criticism of, of U.S. imperialism. But in the end, it's harmless because it doesn't. It's like Winston com-
2: Churchill, yeah, the system is bad, but it's the best system out of all of the bad systems.
1: Exactly, exactly. It it, it it in the end, it's kind of like this harmless opposition, right? I mean, like like yes, he offers criticism of the system, but it doesn't offer alternative to change it. In the end, it means nothing it means you know okay Noam chomsky continue to criticize but but things go on as it is yes
2: so then to deal with um so the dp the dpp doesn't really have like experience running a society so then they decide to use centrist or anti-kmt bureaucrats with experience running and one of them is actually tyngwen who was today's leader she um she was head of the mainland affairs council yeah taiwan has like this this thing called the mainland affairs council which is because you can't because it still recognizes the roc as the sole legitimate government of china and you can't just change the constitution easily so then you can't deal with mainland affairs through the um the ministry of foreign affairs so you have to have this separate council that deals explicitly with mainland affairs it's kind of yeah the um the mainland the mainland um, counterpart to it is called the Tai ban I forgot what it's called in English but it's basically like the taiwan affairs thing so immediately there's power struggles within the dpp cuz um the newly joined bureaucrats have executive power but they're more they're more conservative and they're just all about you know keeping the way things are to maintain stability and you know keep everyone that you know who benefits from them happy and then that puts them at odds with the more um, radical members of the DPP, like the ones who um, were involved in Tangwai Wai and like the early the Formosa incident and like the people who really had had the visionaries who had ideas of what a um, better Taiwanese society would look like. So what you see is a lot of um, those OGs getting w- with more, um, you know, so-called revolutionary ideals being sidelined and the people who were left are you know the 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 opportunists like the bureaucrats and the lawyers and the lawyers refer to like the people like you know mm-hmm. Liu xiu uh uh Su Zhenchang, Xie Changting those people and they they maintain their power with them you know separatist ID poll to get votes of like all these people Liu lian was the only Liu Shoulian was a member of the Formosa Magazine editorial team. And um, Yoshi was a career politician starting in starting in the 1980s. Whereas Su Zhenchang and Xie Changting were lawyers who got famous after the um Gaosheng incident. So um I guess now is the time you kind of want to get into the education system.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: Okay. I think we can go to the education system and then I'll give a little bit more information about Ten And I think that'll be a good stopping point for today. Because I think if we try to get to like get to like 2020, there's like a lot of stuff to cover. Like no, the, uh, no, the Sunflower and stuff
1: like Yeah, that. we we let's let's just go through the nineties and then go yeah. through early two thousand. Yes.
2: Yeah. Okay, so um from I think I mentioned this in the first episode actually, but it was kind of out of place there. So basically from, you know, during Chen Shui-bian's leadership and and shortly afterwards, so from like around 2000 to 2010, the Ministry of Education changed the education curriculum guidelines for history classes two times, meaning that in just one decade, there were a total of three versions of the um, curriculum. And this coincided with the um, DPP's policy of decentralization the major changes came in the 2006 curriculum guidelines and because prior to that Taiwanese history was considered like a subcategory of Chinese history but then now the two are separated yeah like was, like i said before the seeds of um began during the de- began before the DPP took power in 2000 But it was when Shui-bian entered office that it really took off. So um, a lot of things, like what they make of the the February 28th incident is like, um, it kind of because it was left out of Taiwan's history curriculum until 1990, like there was no alternative viewpoint that was presented to the people. So then it was like an area of free reign for the DPP. And um, while it used to be taught as like, um, like while while these, while the beginning problems of um, Taiwan, Taiwan's um, rule under the KMT were treated as like kind of related to the Sino-Japanese War. Now it's kind of, now things like uh, the February 28th incident are taught as like the beginning point of modern Taiwanese history. So, you know, like I said, um, DPP, um, free reign because for a lot of historical revisionism, because it was left kind of untouched. So nowadays it's mostly presented as a simple matter of um, the KMT, which was made up of Shengren from the mainland, massacring Taiwanese people. Whereas it was a lot more complicated than that. There were massacres by the um, by the KMT but it was certainly not a um just a strictly anti-tawanese thing it was it was it was anti whoever challenged the knts authority and what's also left out was um in response a lot of um just mainland civilians like waishung civilians were also during that time when the massacre happened because it lasted th- it lasted over a duration of a couple of weeks it wasn't just like a single day thing um, in fact, the KMT's response with the military didn't begin until March and you like, yeah, so a lot of like main, like, why civilian who were in Taiwan were also just beaten to death, like even gang raped, beaten by like just Taiwanese thugs. And then there's also this whole thing where, like, the historical revisionism now is that also the reinterpretation of the Cairo, de- uh, the, the, what is it, the Cairo Declaration and the Potsdam Declaration to make it seem like, oh, Taiwan's legal status and international politics is undetermined. There is also um, um, just a lot of identity politics stuff, basically. And nowadays, the, it's really uh, easy of-
1: to do. It's really easy to do, right? Uh, because yes. identity politics, uh, you know, like we all—it's not all something look-
2: you study. It's something you feel. Exactly,
1: and and identity is about you know who, who what group you are born into, and and also um, you know like we talk about the characters of uh, 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 of two two eight. Incident it's very incendiary. It's 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 I mean, it's clearly a, a, a great injustice of uh, you know uh, Caused by the by the KMT rule, but uh, 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 like, As you mentioned it, it was done without the class analysis, right and, and like a yes. lot of uh, And also on In a in a kind of mass movement like two to a uh, to eight incident, you know, it's it, it's like a it, 228 incident is very I think it's it, it's a very illuminating in a way that, uh, like we mentioned before, because, um, you know, the, the, the people who are perpetuating the, the misrule on Taiwan are this is a KMT elite. But the people who came with the KMT that, you know, all the other mainlanders, uh, you know, all the soldiers and their family became identified with a KMT elite just because, you know, they, they you know, they, they, then, then they became target, also target of attack for, for revenge, because it's a lot easier to uh, identify someone by, say, their, their origin, right? The, what dialect so they So
2: I, uh, inadvertently, these people, these, um, anti mainland, like mainlanders actually helped the kmt gain like a group of reliable um supporters in these um in these mainland civilians yes because now the kmt's can be like hey these people hate you now we're here to protect you yes we're all white someone yes and And then there's also during sorry go Go on on. no go ahead no you you, i I have Uh, notes i'm just gonna say
1: that that kind of dynamic kind of just reinforced the kind of the the, the divide uh, of between groups in Taiwan right into in solidified into Benson versus We and then uh, politics and and that's what the DPP were able to capitalize on it's like us versus them that's always the best way to uh, you know divide and conquer and and getting your getting most votes because you know demographically on Taiwan you know the the the, the whites and then and their descendants you know only compose what like 15 percent of the population right and then the 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 the, 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 if, the if the DPP can just um, emphasize on this divide and appeal to the, the majority right and then they, they can that's a that's a path to electoral victory
2: yes and then another part of this um historical revisionism is the downplaying of um the cruelty of Japanese rule, which is yes. why like today, even though Taiwan's gone through 50 difficult years of Japanese occupation, Taiwan's youth are largely pro-Japan. I mean, you even see things like uh, saying, you know, the, um, the so-called comfort women or the sex slaves. Th- there's debate on whether or not they were forced. Uh, they're, like they're like, OK, well, you know, some of them did it. Some of, the, some of them did it like, you know, voluntarily while others were captured and stuff. And well, what well, think about it? What kind of people? But i'm I'm speaking of like I'm like broadly, like what kind of people end up like, you know, voluntarily going into it? They're economically desperate. It's still an exploitation of the precarious economic situations yes. and the fact that, you know, under the social hierarchy of the Japanese overlords, you know, yes. like Taiwanese people were like second grade citizens, yes, it's also kind of funny about the hierarchy speaking of which um there is also um a group of Japanese people who were born in Taiwan and then um after retro session they went back to Japan. It's funny because um they were they're called Taisei in, in Japanese or Taisheng which means born uh, in Taiwan. Yeah. So they're like a notch above Taiwanese people, but then when they went back to Japan, they were looked down upon because they spoke Japanese with a Taiwanese accent. Uh, ah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas in Taiwan, they thought they were like superior and like they would tell like they would say things like well you're just a taiwanese i'm like you know japanese and there was that sort of it's called. Yes. it's almost kind of like um in taiwan they'll be like in taiwan they'll be like yeah well back in the day when like white superiority was more of a thing they'll be like you know what was called or whatever but then when they, if they went to the mainland at the time they would just be like mainlanders would just be like dude no you, you're, you're taiwanese yeah Basically, yeah, well, except
1: that, that yeah. that's not how it works, because, you know, like because mainland uh, China in 80s, when, when the first the Taiwanese uh, 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 restriction were lifted on travel to mainland, you know, at that time, you know, Taiwan's much more economically developed than mainland. So people were welcoming. <laughs> the, yeah. The Taiwanese well, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Stage. But then they would still call these people Taiwanese, even if they were like, why shouldn't yeah is what i'm saying
1: yeah oh exactly for for but the, the, the for dynamic's the people, totally different yeah yeah that's that's a very interesting point because for for from the perspective of the people on the mainland you know people from taiwan whether they're Benson and Wai and they're all taiwanese
2: right <laughs> nowadays that's also the case in taiwan but until like the 90s or the 80s like that wasn't the case yeah so it's it's kind of it's kind of strange like it was strange yeah, for I mean, me to figure that stuff out as a kid now that we're, we're talking about the DPP um we touched briefly about the huaminhua Yundong, or the 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 program of japanization of the taiwanese which um you know like like i mentioned before you could you know become a formal um royal sub, uh, subject of the emperor and um you adopt these certain customs and whatever at the at the time however only 2% of Taiwan's population did become Huangmin, and they largely came from the wealthy landowning class. And notable descendants of Huangmin are Li Denghui, Ing-wen, Ingwen, Ke Wenzhe. So the current leader of Taiwan, Tai Ingwen, her father in his youth was sent to northeastern China or Manchuria to repair airplanes for the imperial Japanese army. So does it really surprise you when she's pro-Japan?
1: This is like, uh, this reminds me of, you know, that, that previous South Korean leader, uh, Park, uh, what's Park her Chung name? Park hee uh, yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, you know, like, um, how, just before the President Moon, Moon Jae-in. Park Yes, because she was the daughter, right, of the former, uh, South Korean dictator and, and who was actually served in the, in the IJA. Uh, yeah, he who actually served in the Japanese Kwantung Army in Manchuria.
2: Yeah, he was <laughs> fighting Kim Il Sung. Yep. Uh, um diff- one major difference though is um Taiwan's military was, you know, brought over by the KMT. So like none of the generals there were like really, you know, IJA people. But in South Korea, like a lot of the generals that ended up make that ended up being a lot of the generals in the South Korean army were originally IJA um, soldiers. So there's a slightly different dynamic over there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because the U.S. Uh, U.S. kind of uh, propping up of the the South Korean military dictatorship, a lot of the co- co- Japanese occupation era collaborators stayed on stayed in power, basically. Yeah.
2: Yep. Um, I also want to point out um, I, a, a few a, a few weeks ago. Um, I guess notable notable in the leftist community, notable figure in the leftist community, um, Kayla Moppin made a status saying, "Oh, the, you know, many of the so-called natives in Taiwan are actually descendants of Japanese people," and that's just blatantly false. That's a misunderstanding of Taiwanese history. There's l- very little descendants of Japanese people remained in Taiwan. You have some people who you know might have a little bit of mixed heritage with Japanese, but no, that's most of the so-called native people are Han Chinese Ben ren and it so happens that some of the deep people in power, well, not just so happens, of course, of course, class politics are at play, like people like Tai Ing-wen, Li Dong-hui and stuff, they're descendants of Huang Min who were, they're still Han Chinese, like Taiwanese people, but ones who swore loyalty to the Japanese emperor as a result of the time and for, you know, for that sort of status. And it reflects a certain class position. But like Taiwan is not indeed the they're not descendants of Japanese people.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean like the most I mean Japan did send a huge number of settlers to its former colonies, including Taiwan, Manchuria. Uh, and Korea, but 1945, uh, as after the defeat of Japan in World War II, there was a repatriation program. You know, yes. most of the Japanese people went home to Japan. Yes, yes.
2: So, um, this I guess this marks the end of um the first um, the first term of Chen Sui-bian's leadership. Nothing too um spectacular. You know, so um, I guess that was a good she, time. To uh,
1: kind of- when did when did the Chen Shui-bian uh, government uh, you know do do the organization of the economy to selling off the state-owned uh, enterprises in Taiwan? Did that happen in the second term?
2: I th- no, it happened throughout. It happened um in the ni- it happened in the 90s and 2000s.
1: Oh, so you started under Lee Denhui?
2: Kind of yeah. I remember when ying was mayor and mayor of Taipei, like one of the banks was um privatized Uh, one of the major yeah so like it's it's like the neoliberalization like because a lot of these um government um credit cooperatives they were like the go-to source for you know poor people or whatever to secure loans or whatever or stuff of that stuff of that nature like there was still some sort of like protect like guarantees by the government whereas like completely privatized like the bank they could be a, a lot more discriminatory and um and the way they yeah, loan because, money to people because dmp made
1: a big issue about you know how kmt was controlling a large sector economy over their kind of ownership th- previously through like all these state-owned enterprises right and that that that's like they had to dismantle that kind of as, like dismantling of the kmt rule and kmt power
2: it's like a uh, package deal you get rid of one thing that's like bad but you also Get rid of things that, you know, are better than what they are now. Yeah. 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 So Chen shui Bian, he's a dude from a uh, Tainan County. Well, Tainan County and city are now the same after, um, after like, I think 10 years ago, something like that. But mm-hmm. anyways, he's from rural Tainan. My mom's yep. from like the city of Tainan, like yeah. the, s- 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 um, the yeah, the central, the city center of Tainan. So kind of, kind of same area. He was born to, uh, I, I think his mom, Chen Sui-bian's mom was illiterate. That's just um, the level of poverty, poverty that mm-hmm. he was in. Yeah. He's like a, he's an um, example of working hard in school and kind of making it. But it wasn't all just him working hard. He also, he also um, ran into a lot of luck. He studied law at National Taiwan University, which is um the one of the which is the most prestigious university in Taiwan. He became a lawyer in um 1973, so he got his license then, and he started. By then he was um. By then he was married to his to his wife Wu Shuzhen. And she's from a wealthy family, I think um her I think her, her parents were doctors, so Chen Shui Bian opened up a law office with money that was lent or given to him by his father-in-law so he went who was like rags to riches and then he eventually became a lawyer in the um you know the aforementioned Kaohsiung incident or the Formosa magazine incident and um, he people were surprised when he got caught in an embezzlement scandal during his second term, but if you look at if you look at the numbers, he was already getting into sketchy shit when he was the mayor of Taipei from 1994 to 1998. He um his net worth because you know you had to report your um your assets and stuff when you when you run for office. So in 1995, the lowest valuation of his net worth was um. 69,179,364 Taiwan dollars which according to the foreign exchange rate at the time was worth um 2 million like 2.6 million which is worth um 4.4 million in today's dollars so um approximately 4 million new, um new taiwan dollars were in stocks the rest was mostly in real estate now His net worth in 1999, the lowest valuation was um, 173 million, 173.88 million, which according to foreign exchange rates at the time was worth um, 5.4 million U.S. dollars, which in today's dollars is worth 8.37 million U.S. dollars. And approximately 50 million Utah NTD were in stocks. The rest was mostly in real estate. So did his, porf- did his stock portfolio increase that much in value or did he buy more shares? And uh, the answer is the latter. His portfolio went from um, 68.8 thousand shares to 1.5 million shares. And if we assume that he did not spend a single cent of his salary as mayor, his wealth his wealth increase would have only been a little over 8 million NTD which is worth um which was worth 247. uh 98,000 in 1999 or 385,000 in um today's dollars. So you kind of see if you I guess if you were really inclined to you can pause and just write all these numbers down and do the math. So when he ran for um um Taiwanese leader he ran on the platform of anti-corruption and um and his
1: his net worth just doubled. <laughs> it's, it's like
2: how, how do you how do you double your how do you nearly double your wealth in just four years? And in addition to his large increase in stock holdings, his cash holdings also went from, um, uh, I think eleven point eleven point six eight million Taiwan dollars to fifty three point three eight million Taiwan dollars, which it nearly quintupled. Like how of course there's corruption so um basically 2004 lian zhan ran again lian zhan the the kmt candidate from 2000 this time with song Yu as his running mate and the polls were 50 50 between lian and chen but then there was a quote-unquote assassination attempt on Chen Sui-bian that garnered a bunch of sympathy votes. And Lian Zhan lost to Chen Sui-bian by just 30,000 votes. Yeah, so basically,
1: that, I remember that election. It was really weird. It's just literally on the eve of the election, and and there's some supposed freak uh, assassination on Chen Sui-bian, uh, which barely made It a was change. shot
2: at an angle so that it would go just right through his... um." It would just kind of scathe him a little bit, yeah. not actually penetrate him. And yeah. then I think in the team, because like he was doing a rally, like one of the people in that group was like a Waiker who specializes in like bullet wounds. Mm. So I mean, was it was it a planned like was it was it fake, or is it an actual assassination attempt? You know, I, I, you're inclined to your own views, but I I tend to believe that it was it was done for show.
1: It's uh, whatever he it was, that that event helped him to propel him to a second term. Yes,
2: two bullets. If Trump is, if Trump, if you're worried about your re-election, just look to the 2004 election in Taiwan and learn a thing or two from it. It might help you out. Just saying.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, brother. Something to consider. Um, So... Once again, you know, ID poll, anti-KMT slogans. The um the leadership throughout the four, the first four years didn't really bring the people the hope and change they sought, and the economy wasn't really doing well. And then there was also the um the whole corruption scandal. So basically, um it was discovered that Chen Shui Bian had a bunch of um just a bunch of money in I think Swiss bank accounts. And yeah, he ended up getting thrown in prison. After I mean,
1: Taiwan politics has always been known for you know corruption, oh, sure. right? There's, a, there's yeah. a term called Heijing, right? The the black gold, and and refer to to the buying of votes in Taiwan. And then the, um, but the you know the the, the Chen Shui Bian's main electoral platform was to cleaning up the election and it turns out he was just the same as the other taiwan politicians that gone before him.
2: I was reading and, his book and it's just like very stereotypical like third way politician like like I said like I mentioned before how like you know taiwan's democratization coincided with um the um the counter revolutions in the so- the socialist bloc, right? Yeah,
1: we we briefly talk about.
2: Yeah. So like in his book, he's always talking about like, oh, my, oh, my, my political idols are people like Tony Blair and and um, Bill Clinton. And like wow. now they're going for like a, a path of, of a new central, new centrism, which, which proves something. People all over the world are, are disgusted with extreme left and extreme right politics. We need to find the perfect balancing point where we can secure, you know, um, a better social safety net for the middle class, and also like let businesses thrive, and this, this, and that. And he was just talking about um how um he is his book talks about how he played an important historical role as um as someone who helped lead Taiwan in its first successful successful um change of party leadership, which is hilarious because the person the person he lost to was Song Yu. And Song Chui wasn't in the KMT at that time. He was part of the Qin Min Dang. So even if Song Chui had won, it still would have been a change in the party. It was, still would have been like, he was like, yeah, you know, his words were like, um, Taiwan is going with, the, um, going with the latest trends of international politics and is standing in the right side of history as we're getting rid of one party domination and moving towards true democracy with multiple parties. It was just, his book was filled with awe. All those sorts of um. Do you
1: think writers. he actually write the book, or he was ghost written?
2: I don't know because I try imagining it in his voice, and it sounds like him talking. <laughs> okay. But um, not, the 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 point is, it doesn't matter though because the point is that's the impression that he wants to give the yes. people. I doubt he really believes half of that bullshit. And then, but then there were also parts of the book that talk that really show you like what the relationship between the U.S. and um. Taiwan were like, because it was talking about how he attended a wedding. I think it was his daughter's wedding or something. I forgot. And how he had a letter in his suit from like, and it had to do with 9 um, 11 attacks and how to deal with it. And like how he had the military on standby in case anything happened. And I'm just like, what does Taiwan have to do with fucking 9 11? Why is the military on alert? Like, what? Wh- why?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's one of those things where you know, like, like something that happens in you know, people, even in people in East Asia, they pay more attention to things that happen in Washington or Paris or you know, like that. It's it's it, 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 that that somehow is supposed to be unless it's bad things like Snowden. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, so it's yeah, go on. No, no, no. Go go ahead. Go
2: ahead. Go ahead. I remember it was like a great shift because um when I was when I was little in the nineties, I remember like, you know, it wasn't controversial in Taiwan to call yourself Chinese. But then by the time I was in third grade, I was um I was in third grade from two thousand one to two thousand two. This around that time, um I was in Taiwan for the summer and my cousins were who were just like a few years older than me. Started saying things like, No, we're not Chinese, we're Taiwanese, and um, Taiwan is an independent country. So, you can see how like they, they get them young, you know. This was
1: uh, this was 1990s.
2: No, 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 when this happened, this was in the early 2000s. Ah, okay, okay,
1: yeah, yeah. And I think it's yeah. a process that kind of started in under Hui era, but like kind of in the stealth mode, <laughs> it's kind of in stealth mode. <laughs> Yeah, but under Chen Shui Bian, it was full. Uh, it was it was full out in the open, and and you know Chen Shui Bian is one of those figures where you know he started out his career in opposition as this guy who you know actually went to jail for he did went to jail, right? I believe he was arrested. Yes, yes. And, you know, went to jail against the dictatorship of Chiang Kai Shek, uh, KMT government, and then and then you know this is. Uh, this is supposed to be almost like a Nelson Mandela story, right? But, but in the end, it turns out when he's actually empowered, the DPP turns out to be not that different from the KMT government before it. And, and And so to distinguish themselves from the KMT, they increasingly rely on identity politics. Like, oh, you know, we are... Uh, you know, that that means, you know, historical revision uh, that, you know, just 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 on all the things that um, it, it, it kind of makes sense in a way, because, you know, to to, you know, what's the other alternative, you know, to to actually what improve people's lives <laughs> <laughs> to to, to uh, provide better governance to 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 like. Uh, uh to 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 build up the taiwanese society no that's that record that takes hard work right i mean it's (laughs) it's a lot easier to take the existing divisions within taiwan society along identity lines heighten it and 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 then 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 rouse people's emotions and then you know use that to win votes you see that's a lot easier
2: yes and um like it's kind of it's it's You can note how um, during that time, because the DPP's party platform, the party program does talk about how it wants to form a Republic of Taiwan through a referendum. So, um, but... When the DPP was in power, it kind of started a referendum, but then it blocked it. Which means they're not... They're not really, like... If you think about it the dpp wants independence no more than the kmt wants reunification if taiwan truly became a republic of taiwan and it became de jure independent there would there's no more um there's no more um scapegoat for taiwan's problems you can't rely on these these identity politics things won't be won't be reliable anymore because now the the rhetoric is Taiwan's economy and all this stuff is doing bad because mainland China is oppressing Taiwan and excluding Taiwan from uh, participating in international organizations but I mean it's 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 Taiwan is prohibited from entering as as a country but not in other forms I mean whether or not this is right or wrong is up for debate and not going to comment too much on it but if you think about it like cuba is recognized as a sovereign country because it is but can you really say that taiwan is more isolated globally than cuba taiwan's not subject to the same economic and political sanctions that cuba is
1: again this is uh, <clears throat> kind of place to the to People, it's 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 about pride, right? It's about dignity, right? And you know, it's about you know, you can hold a Taiwan pass passport to other countries and and be recognized as, as from Taiwan than being associated with with China, which in in a lot of people's mind in Taiwan at the at the time in the early 2000s still like this. This backward place with a lot of poor people. It's not not the not the image they want to be associated with.
2: Yes. It's kind of like um the whole I'm not Chinese. My parents are Chinese. I'm American, but on a whole societal level. Yeah,
1: yeah. But except so, um, like that's, that's that's that's
2: yeah. A little bit different, not exactly. But then because, um, basically, people were fed up with the DPP at that time. So, Ma ying won election in 2008. Ma ying um uh, just your quintessential, like, second-generation Wai ren in Taiwan. He was actually born not in Taiwan, but in Hong Kong. But then moved to Taiwan when he was, like, a little kid. His parents are from uh, Hunan. So I guess he's, um, he's distant cousins with Mao. Or not, not cousins, but like you know, their同乡.
1: Yeah.
2: He um, yeah. And well, did he really have much of a platform other than um, well, stabilizing cross-strait relations? But most of it was just, hey, I'm not Chen Sui <laughs> It's kind of like Joe Biden nowadays. It's like, hey, well, <laughs> I'm I'm not Donald Trump. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, okay. I also remember because Ma and Joe was a relatively young, youngish, good-looking guy. So I, I, I read reports about His how votes he-
2: among female voters was higher than among male voters. Yes. And they think it's because of his looks.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I, he, was, I he,
0: remember- was
2: a good, he was a good-looking guy. Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, Chen Shui-bian embezzled too much money. So he was actually ostracized by the DPP and ended up being, ended up like quitting the party along... Uh, along with his wife his wife was also his wife and his son-in-law they were all heavily involved in embezzling so um i guess um next time we can start talking about minjo and um Tsai Ing-wen and the um Sunflower movement, but today I think we should we can end on um just discussing about like the changes because now this is stuff that's happened in my lifetime Yes, so it's things that I've seen so like is there anything you specifically want to talk about or touch on that? We've covered and just try to put like a more human side to these um stories. We've been telling
1: Yeah, I I like would like to hear more about you know from your Your personal stories, you know how you experienced Taiwan. I think that kind of kind of make it more personal to and uh, more relatable for for people
2: for a lot of listeners yes okay so i mean um it's the first time i went to taiwan i didn't really have memories i was like nine months old how because old how, which year was this do you remember approximately well if i what? was nine months i was born in march so it was like the end of 1993. ah
1: okay so and, this um, is the last uh so this is uh, near the end of Denghui's first term, right? Or 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 in the middle. I forgot
2: which number term. Uh, yeah. his first term was in eighty-eight. Eighty-eight. Ah, he was yeah, right. three. Oh, terms weren't really a thing because it, he wasn't directly elected yet. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Basically, um, it, it was in the middle of his leadership.
1: Yeah,
2: but um, th- I guess more towards the beginning. But my mom wanted to like you know show me to my um grandparents and her grandmother. My grandparents were gonna visit the u s but my great grandfather like fell down the stairs and died like a few months before I was born, so that that was cancelled um so I went to Taiwan like a lot as a kid, like maybe like every summer or so, and it was always, like, a few months at the same time, before, because I wasn't, like, going to school, and, like, if, when it was preschool, I could just, you know, it wasn't a big deal to just not go. So, um, yeah, it was, I remember distinctly, I didn't know why at the point, at, at that point yet, but I remember, like, my mom's friends in America, who were also from Taiwan, spoke predominantly in Mandarin to each other, whereas, like, my mom's like relatives in Taiwan, they would speak Mandarin to like my generation and my cousins. But then when they spoke to each other, they spoke in their own dialect. I noticed that. So then I kind of picked, I picked up on the dialect too. I mean, I don't, it, it wasn't my first language because my dad doesn't speak it. So then it wasn't like the, it wasn't the, um, the lingua franca in my household, but it was, I, I ha I've had enough exposure to it. That I can. I can understand it well and speak it like okay, not the best. I end up sticking a lot of Mandarin into it.
1: Wait, your your dad your dad also speak Korean, right?
2: Yeah, and he speaks some Shandonghua or Donghua. Oh,
1: right, right. That's because that's his home uh, home language, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 mother tongue. Yeah,
2: but um, so I'm like the first I'm I'm the first person in my family who speaks standard, standard Mandarin as my first language. On either side but um yeah so I I, I just kind of knew that there is this guy named Li Donghui didn't really have much of an opinion had much of an opinion about him but then what really struck me was in 2000 when there was the election I mean it was a big deal because my mom's a Sheng ren. so then she was like all for chen Shui bian and my mom's not even like a Taiwanese separatist she just liked the idea of having like finally having a like a Taiwanese president or yeah. leader. You know? I mean Yidunghwe was, but then Yidunghui wasn't really elected by the people. He was in nineteen ninety-six, but come on, like it's because of his popularity from before when he wasn't when he wasn't directly elected. So then yeah, well, I remember um watching it on TV because we had satellite satellite TV, so we got like Taiwanese news and stuff like that. And it was a huge deal. Like when, when Chen Sui-bian won, there were, so, there were so many riots. And then like, on like political talk shows where people called in live, they were like cursing, like saying things like, uh, which um, is like hooking for like, fuck your mother, KMT.
1: On TV, wow. It was live <laughs> TV,
2: so they can't censor it. <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, you know, immigrant parents, Hope that their kids don't learn these like learn this sort of vocabulary because they're like, well, they're away from they're they're away from the country now, so then they won't be exposed to that. Now they were wrong, <laughs> and then um, so I was just asking like I, w- I would ask my mom like, how come there are riots and stuff, and she would explain well the KM, like KMT was like really the KMT was really mean in the past, mm. and how like it was really mean to Taiwanese people, and um, how they ha- they. They, um, looked after Wai song more and, like, had e- just basically stuff that we were talking about. But even then, she, my mom still identifies as Chinese, and she was, she's never really been much of a separatist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of, so then, like, growing up, I've been, like, I, I've I've been brought up as, like, you know, told that I'm Chinese. Like, uh, so and also because
1: like, your mom kind of left Taiwan, like, uh, before 90s, right? Or...
2: Yes, she came to America in 1983.
1: Yeah, because back then, when that's when most people in Taiwan still identify as Chinese. <laughs> yes, I feel like if
2: she never left Taiwan by 2000, she would have stopped calling herself Chinese, probably. Maybe, yeah. Like my um, like her older brother is like a Taiwan independence fascist.
1: This is your so this my, is your my, cousin.
2: Yeah. No, no, my, my my mom's my uncle, my mom's brother, my mom's older oh. brother.
1: Yeah, I see, I see. Okay.
2: Yeah, he like when I was little, he was he was he was telling me stuff like how about like we're all like, uh. like we're at this point we're not Chinese anymore. Uh. And he told me to not call mainland China the mainland, but to call it China. He says to call it mainland is to imply that we're the same country. Uh. yeah. And like I go to his house, he has like all these like DPP banners and like say no to China like banners and it's 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 quite hilarious um it's kind of so this this sort of divide has always been like in my family but also have like my mom's younger brother he's like a centrist like in the 80s he was pro like and pro DPP back when it was taboo to be um you know pro DPP but then like now he's like super anti-Taiwan, so he's like Why? he's like I mean, he's basically a centrist. Like he's you know he's pro- promised a lot of these things and then they don't deliver. And he's he mm-hmm. says that it seems to him that the DPP is bringing Taiwan closer to war. And he said mm-hmm. that like he says like. You know, you look at some like we're really lucky that we haven't experienced hot war in our lifetimes. he, he says, you look at a lot of war-torn countries. It's like these the, the people there, like the children, they don't have opportunities. And he says he doesn't want that to happen in Taiwan. And he says that the BPP, because of its opportunism, is bringing Taiwan closer to closer to that. I don't th- I don't think things are that dire, to be honest. no but, me but um I think he's like, he was, like, pro-Han yu this time. Hmm. I think just because of... Um, he's a centrist, and he's, like, I guess... He just wants stability, and... Yeah. Tsai Ing-wen hasn't really impressed him. What, uh... He was, like... <laughs> he was pro Chen Sui-bian, but then, like, he voted against Chen Sui-bian, and he supported Ma ying jeou But then he supported Tsai Ing-wen at first, but now he's, like, anti-Tsai Ing-wen. So he's, like, you know, typical wavering centrist. <laughs> he's also worked as... um He's worked as... Um assistant as an assistant for um city council members city council men and women for uh, both parties in his city so he has like a lot of inside information on the DPP uh, and on the KMT like I, I remember when I was uh, when I was when I was uh 15 I, I actually hung out in this one KMT office in Thailand when he was helping when he was uh, the assistant of a of a candidate for um city councilwoman yeah i remember that but then like and then he became so then i, I well to kid, be fair like to we... your
1: uncle i mean the taiwan leader leaders haven't really been impressive <laughs>
2: since, exactly, exactly.
1: Since, you don't worry, right since the election it, it hasn't been hasn't been anyone that really stood out or or really delivered on their promises
2: yeah. Like he's not really a communist, but then he'll hear me talking about some things and he'll just you can you can tell he kind of just agrees with with a bit of it. Yeah. With a good bit of it. Yeah. But um what else? I remember um like even even when Chen Sui-bian was leader, it was still normal for people to just refer to mainland China as Da Lu or mainland. Right. But in recent years, like if you call it Da Lu, some people just like kind of out you as like a um anti-tawanese oh wow now it's like so, now it's like you're supposed to call it wow the middle ground is to call it which is like mainland china yeah yeah uh, I, I still i still call it i still haven't been canceled yet but i think I, I think it's because um with my music career and stuff like i i'm able to back my claims up. that <laughs> i think i think liberals just don't really want to like they know how to deal with like Like pro KMT people, and they know how to deal with like the typical you know mainlander who approaches these issues from like a nationalistic standpoint. But I don't think they know how to approach these things from like a like a Marxist Leninist standpoint. So they just kind of don't fuck with me. (laughs)
1: well that's why i have you on the show (laughs) because yes um because we really value your unique insight and perspective and and i think your personal experience kind of really helped out flesh out that even more um you know we have already been talking for hours and and next time when we uh you know get together i like to you know really talk about the changes, I think like what I think I want to talk about is also like the we kind of touch on it briefly about the the neoliberal econo- uh, liberal, economic liberalization on Taiwan, because that kind of lead to some of the issues faced by the Taiwan youth today. Right. Because yes. you know, because right now, a lot of problems faced by youth in Taiwan is not that dissimilar from the issue being faced by like the millennials or the zoomers in the US in the West. It's it's the hollowing out of the economy, um, you know, the the the, 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 the increasing stratification in society yes, and yes. the you know the rich get richer poor gets poor and and just like limited economic opportunity for the new generation and it's kind and I of think- like
2: the point of the sunflower movement but then they turned it into just like an anti-china movement
1: yes yes that, that's the history of taiwan right every time, every
2: time there's like something that's like remotely class conscious okay we're gonna turn it into id poll <laughs>
1: yes yes i mean that's that's not itself is not limited to taiwan it, it, it oh yeah, yeah, yeah. happened. Globally, many many society in these kind of uh, liberal, so-called liberal democracies, and and what
2: get yeah, so interesting I, next episode because we'll get to talk about like some of the new parties that emerged, but the, yes. we'll also talk about how Taiwan's political system isn't really isn't really catered towards third parties. And um, usually, if you if you're a third party and you want to make it big, you have to join either coalition, the the yeah. Pan Green coalition led by the DPP yeah. or the Pan Blue coalition led by the KMT. And these aren't official coalitions, but they're they're, they're pretty much there.
1: Yeah, the 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 thing, the thing, the ironic thing is that kind of the two party divide in Taiwan is increasingly similar to the two, two so-called two party divide in U.S., right? Yes, Where you yes. have this, these uh, parties. It's represent- the
2: perfect way to solidify class rule, to present like these alternatives. And you, you can shift blame on each other. But at the yes. end of the day, no matter who wins or loses, the same people win and lose.
1: Yes. And, and these, it's it's, it's, uh, it's like these two parties representing different oligarchic interests, uh, fighting each other for, for greater share of control while, uh, you know, hyping up kind of like the, the, the identity politics and, 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 you know, the social, the divide on social and cultural issues, um, uh and 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 while per- basically perpetuating the status quo right which is increasingly heading down to e- more economic stagnation um mm-hmm. okay just a second let me answer this real quick hey babe i'm still in the middle of the call can you just uh, send me a text message Okay. okay okay, okay. talk to you later okay um all right so i guess it's time to wrap it up Um this uh you uh, know we have have uh we've been talking for two and a half hours and we're just we're just getting through the 90s right and, and a little no, bit no we're
2: of, we're we're through the early we're through the
1: two we're 2000. to 2008 now yeah yeah we're, we're we're okay 2000 but but next time we meet like i said i wanted to talk a little bit more about uh the the economic policies uh on taiwan since uh you know since the Chen Shui, since oh i mean it started a little bit from leading Hui right so starting from leading Hui through 10 european yeah. era at, down to the present and how the you know that kind of impacted the, the the prospect of uh, the new generation on taiwan and how that you know caused the po- politics to to evolve and then, and then we can talk about the new parties and the sunflower movement and all that because it, everything is kind of interconnected right the politics the economics
2: and which is why we're, would, this series started from prehistoric times and it tries to cover a little bit of everything to give a better context yes yes
1: and i think we have uh, and thanks to you i think we, we have been fleshed out quite a quite a bit on the details of the taiwan political development so uh thank you very much shang yu again for joining the show and i look forward to talking to you next time on uh you know the the more modern taiwan yes
2: it's like all, always a pleasure to be on this okay. is like my only social activity after the whole lockdown thing so <laughs> looking forward to the next time we talk
1: Hey, anytime, anytime. I'm I'm in Bali. We're we're in the same, situ- same boat here. So uh, it's always a pleasure, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Until next time. Bye bye. Alright, bye.
0: Yo. Bread salute to ransom notes. This is for the people. Fuck the US of America. Say Says Who is yo, says D. Woman nungfo, to wend your wood. Say 谁的盟友 谁的利润, 的 teacher, the Say Triple 不知己欺人